0: In this episode, we'll be doing Tales from Outer Space 1752 to 1765. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 1752. Story number one. All is fair in love and war. The fascinating phenomenon of human backbonding and the horrific brutality of human warfare. Written by Louis Le Diamond. Humans are well known to backbond with literally anything even inanimate objects. Hence the introduction to the galaxy's favorite pest control, the domestic cat. And our most loyal guard, the domestic dog. Both companion species to humankind. Something almost unheard of from any other species. But what exactly is this pack-bonding phenomenon humans call love? Many galactic citizens are unaware of the true reason the Kylonti chose to invade Earth immediately, rather that asked for surrender of course we all know that it was some great heresy that led to unusually high level of aggression even from such an already aggressive species the true reason was to do with the absurdly strange human mating conventions while most species have things such as breeding grounds select individuals with above average genes to select from to continue the species and government assigned partners humans instead ...chose their own partners and stay with them. It isn't unheard of for two humans to have a single child and stay together for the rest of their lives. The Kailanti found this practice completely disgusting. But this effect was due to a complex web of emotions known as love. When the Kailanti failed to realize is how this complex web of emotions... ...is not humanity's greatest weakness, like one might assume, but in fact its greatest strength. In order to understand how, however, I must give an abridged summary as to what love actually is. To begin, it's important to note that love isn't just one thing, but can fall into two major categories, family and romance. Family, which includes very close friendships unique to Earth, is probably the more powerful of the two. It extends to the closest of friendships and relatives, genetics and otherwise, of a human. This also extends to humankind's best friends, their domesticated dogs and cats, along with any other animal a human may choose to pack bond with. If a human shares incredibly sensitive information about themselves in a non professional setting, they probably feel this kind of attachment to you, in which case it is best to keep this information to yourself. It is a great honor. To be shared this level of human love romantic and by extension sexual love is while perhaps not always as strong as familial love is a force to be reckoned with this form of love is felt towards sexual partners but is often not aimed at reproduction as odd as it sounds human partners often simply enjoy each other's company but don't mistake the seemingly mundane phenomenon as weak it drives humans to do insane things. Many of the crazy stories from the terrible conquests, brief rule over the soul 1 system of humans doing impossible things, was caused by love. The Bear of the West, an infamous and anonymous human fighter, for example, didn't fight off an entire army single-handedly for a snack and a warm bed, but because his wife and daughter were in danger. The Human Global United Front's 409th Division, the King Tigers, earned their nickname after several successful stealth attacks on Kylonti's FOBs, and most of the humans involved were fighting for their families and romantic partners back home. These are only two examples, but virtually every human hero and legend was influenced directly by love. Love, however, can become corrupt and twisted if a loved one is killed. Many of the terrifying events and actions humans took against the Kailanti demonstrated this, such as the Warsaw Massacre, where thousands of Kailanti tourists were slaughtered by human resistance fighters, or the Bloody Erie Incident, where human fighters blew a large hole in the then-frozen Lake Erie, dropping many thousands of Kailanti soldiers foolish enough to set up camp on the ice into the freezing waters below. Both massacres were in direct response to the Kailanti demoralization campaigns that involved the mass genocide of millions of human civilians in the human cities of Poznan, Cleveland, Tokyo, London, and many more. The Kailanti were not expecting such a violent reaction as none of the billions of conquered planets before had such a reaction. Anyways, I think I'm taking enough of your time today. To all the wannabe conquerors out there, best avoid Earth and her colonies, or really any colony with humans loving there, especially if they have a pack. They might just drop you in a frozen egg if you hurt their loved ones. Thank you all for reading. This has been your favorite space blogger and love of your life, Gothak, and as always, goodbye and goodnights. End of story. Story number two. Teleportation and you, written by Paragon Nostus. So your species has developed teleportation. Congratulations! By following these simple steps, you too can avoid becoming a bioluminescent sentient goo, ready to be scraped off the boot of the next patron. Number one: never enter a teleporter in tandem with another creature. You may be fused together or have more limbs than originally intended. Number two no perishable food items they become radioactive and develop feelings for world domination number three any and all anomalous time travel shenanigans must be reported to the nearest temporal agent if an agent is currently unavailable in your time avoid expiration until one is made available to you number four if offered any food by strange interdimensional creatures be sure to reject their proposal as they might try to bind your atomic structure to their dimension's physics. Number five. Any and all clones created by teleportation are to be exterminated. Those who refuse will be terminated, and their clones will take their place as the original one. Number six. By entering the teleporter, you are agreeing to fight in the next great time war. Those drafted must arrive at the end of the time and no later than the heat death of the universe. Number seven. In the likelihood of your death, your atoms may be held as evidence for the dangers of teleported travel. They may also be used as a substitute for vanilla extract in my next cake, provided I'm unable to go to the store. Number 8. All personal items are to be secured beforehand. Any left unsecured may fuse to your body and give you temporary or permanent superhuman abilities. In the event this occurs, you are required to register your alter ego as well as take a mandatory seminar on why turning evil is super uncool. Number 9. In the event you become your own grandma, refer to Rule 3. Rule number 10. There is no external energy binding all living things. Any delusional thoughts like this must be reported to the nearest Psychological Evaluation Center. Any attempts to become one with the hypothetical energy will be met with an extreme prejudice. Number 11. Any and all interactions with giant koalas are to be directly monitored by your supervisor. Number 12. Ascending to another plane of existence will not be tolerated without three to five business days notification beforehand. If no attempt is made to do so, any and all vacation days are forfeit. Number 13. Eating any and all strawberry flavored desserts marked Tyler will be subject to a warrant being placed on you and your family. Yes, we're looking at you, Dave. Number 14. In the event your arm or appendage disintegrated in travel, you are allowed a maximum of two weeks sick leave in your species equivalent time frame. Number 15. Any and all self-proclaimed gods met during transportation are to be ignored if one attempts to contact you. uh, Good luck. Number 16. No members of the Q-continuum are allowed within 8,000 standard units of a teleporter or wormhole technology. Number 17. Dave is to be shot on sight. No, this is not a drill. Number 18. Pets are not allowed near the machines. See Rule 1. Number 19. No Gary xenomorphic alien facehuggers cannot be classified as faceware. 20. Humans are to never tamper with Teleporter's calibrated for other species, even if they just want to put pitching flames on the side. End of story. Story number three. They did what others do in 50,000 in 5,000 years. Posted by Incredible Ha. Turnal had just faced the greatest surprise in his life. In the life of his descendants and in the life of his kin. This couldn't be right. Perhaps they forgot to add a zero. That was quite plausible. Fifty thousand years is a respectable amount of time to go from a Bronze Age society to a Space Age one. But five thousand years... Jack again, are you sure humans are hating us? He asked his assistant. The assistant nodded, yes sir. Turnell moved a few of his mandibles in confusion. They are in the Bronze Age 5,000 years ago. They can't be in space yet. Are you sure those are humans and not Trevians or Garstarians? Those are humans, sir. Hail them. Contact the Federation and force them to send more diplomats. I'm an asteroid whiner. This is far above my pay grade, he said. As you wish. These humans had to be uplifted. He opened his datapad and looked for them in the database. Around 1,983rdark generations ago... The most advanced probe to date, the Ashrian 4, was sent to monitor the new area of the galaxy. Three sapient species were logged. The most prominent of these were humans. Despite having the same lifespan as many other species, they developed unusually fast. In the current year, they are theorized to have reached the Iron Age. This uh, couldn't be right. As far as Terra knows, we knew the Iron Age didn't include spaceships. ''The humans are responding to our hails, audio only,'' his assistant said. ''To know, nodded. Put them on.'' ''I am currently speaking to humanity,'' he asked. ''This had to be some sort of joke. It was simply too absurd. Not only that, but he wasn't a diplomat. What was he going to say if they were humans?'' ''I'm sorry. I thought you were still figuring out how the electricity works. That wasn't going to work.'' ''Yes, yes you are.'' A voice on the other side came through. It had a distinct tone, almost as if it was evolved to speak. It was human. They did what others would do in 50,000, in 5,000. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1753. Bargains, written by ACK 1308. Men huddled behind the tree, trying hard to not breathe out loud. Through the screen of ferns, his eyes were fixed on the old-fashioned ceramic saucer, brimming with fresh raw casemoc, set off by the home-baked cookie, only natural ingredients perched against one side. It all sat on moss-covered tree trunk, right where the light of the full moon could spill over it. He'd done it just right, or as close to right as the stories he'd heard made it sound. Everything organic. Nothing processed, no preservatives or insecticides, as little touched by cold iron as possible. Now all he had to do was wait. Time passed. The moon crept upwards into the sky. Tiny forest animals skittered here and there. Bugs chirped. Frogs croaked. Something long and sinuous slithered over Ben's foot. He barely noticed. So firmly was his attention fixed on the saucer and the cookie. And then, into the beam of moonlight, fluttered something that wasn't a moth, wasn't a cricket. It was too large by far, with the long translucent wings that whirred as it flew. Ben stopped breathing altogether. Once, twice, thrice, the winged creature circled the stump. Twice it paused and stared accusingly into the darkness. One of those times, directly at Ben. He froze, not even blinking It circled the stump again. The forest was so quiet that Ben could hear a train chugging along the track fifteen miles away. The creature was mumbling to itself. There were two sides to what it was saying, as if it was two different people arguing with each other. Must be a trap. Has to be a trap. Why must it be a trap? It's milk and cookies. Who leaves milk and cookies, man? Who sets a trap, man? It's a trap. But milk and cookies. The voice was wheedling. No milk and cookies, the creature flew off to a few yards, then dithered. M- maybe a little try. Fly away, if danger. It's a trap. But the voice with reason was less confident now. Uh, just a nibble. J- just a sup. Trap. It was just a whimper. The creature fluttered closer and closer, then perched on the stump, crouching next to the saucer. Now that it was still... He could see that it was about five inches tall with subtly inhuman proportions. Its skin was iridescent, gleaming in the moonlight. While its hair was silvery purple, he watched as it took up the cookie, needing both hands to lift the baked pastry to its tiny mouth. There was a tiny crunch as it took a bite. Then it lowered its face to the lock. Ben didn't move except for two fingers. There was a string hanging beside him, and he tugged on it. As the diminutive figure hoisted the cookie again, the net fell from above. Not just any net, however. This was made from hairs plugged from the tail of an elderly mare, and painstakingly woven into the shape of his own hands. At each juncture was a tiny shaving of silver taken from antiques that had once belonged to his grandmother. The net drifted down as lightly as Gossamer in the summertime. Perched on the stump, the tiny creature had no idea of its peril right up until the strand settled over it. Screeching and alarmed, it tried to leap into the air, but its wings tangled in the net, and it subsided into useless struggling. Ben's joints were almost frozen solid by this time, but he forced his knees to open, and he stood up. Clumsily, he lurched towards the stump, using the tree as support. "'You've eaten my food and quaffed my drink,' he declared. "'I hold a debt over you.' The fay being ceased its struggles and glared up the human. Man, it hissed. Knew it was a trap. It was a trap, Ben acknowledged, and he flew right into it. He settled himself on another stump closer to the trapped creature. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what you're willing to give me to get out of it. Mick glared at him. Man, it spat. Trap's treacherous cheats. That doesn't matter, snapped Ben. You have to do what I say or I can punish you. Silence fell briefly. Then a stick snapped further back in the forest. A footstep sounded, then another. Ben looked wildly around, wondering who the hell would be out here at night, and how they'd snuck up on him. A stranger picked his way into the clearing, looking for all the world like a stereotypical bureaucrat. He wore a suit and tie, and his hair was neatly combed. In his hand was a briefcase, brushing off a fallen log, he sat down and looked over my focals at Ben. "'Let's not be so hasty, hmm? he said mildly. "'Certainly you have him at a disadvantage, and certainly he has eaten of your, your food and imbibed of your milk. There is a debt owed here, but perhaps not one as stringent as you seem to imagine.' "'And who the devil are you?' demanded Ben. "'What are you doing here?' "'Ah, careful now,' the man said." "'raising his hand slightly. "'Names have power in places and times like this, "'and you do not wish to attract the wrong sort of attention, "'especially with voices raised in anger. "'A horsehair net fastened with silver "'will not serve to bind one such as him.' "'His voice was so mild, so unthreatening, "'that Ben felt himself relaxing. "'This was not an enemy. What he was, Ben wasn't sure, "'but he certainly posed no physical danger.' All right, then, he said, more carefully. Who are you, and what are you doing here? The forgettable man smiled, a brief stretching of the mouth rather than any particular expression of emotion. My name is Nigel Fotherby, of Fotherby and Blythe. I am here to negotiate the release of your captive without any mischief done on either side. What? Ben couldn't understand what was going on. I just dropped the net, just now. How did you find out? "'How did you get here so fast? Did you know I was going to do this?' "'Ah, <sighs> ah cautioned Bell the "'Temper, my dear boy. I did not know you were going to do this one minute ago. I was finishing up matters in our London office when I was contacted regarding this situation. Our firm handles this sort of thing on the side, you see. When I expressed my willingness to take this case on, they briefed me in detail about what had been done.' I made my preparations and was deposited a short distance away, so as to not startle you into precipitated action. All in one minute, Ren found that hard to believe. For the beside, you really do need to pay more attention to your myths and fables. You have heard, no doubt, about weary travelers entering fairy mounds and being wined and dined all night long, only to emerge a hundred years hence into the world that knows them not or of children entering a mystic realm and living whole lifetimes before coming back to the very same moment in time. I was drawn into a region of the Feylands where hours passed for me while mere seconds ticked by here. It allowed me all the time in the world to assemble my preparations, and thus here I am. Oh, right. The dry-as-dust explanation was what really salted. it. Botherby wasn't interested in convincing Ben. He merely wanted to explain matters and get along with it. Okay, then, so you're here to uh, negotiate precisely, Motherby offered Ben an approving smile. You do not know this little scam's true name, and neither will I give it to you. We will call him Thistledown, for this nonce. He has been foolish and scatterbrained enough to enter your trap, as crude and as simple as it was and so a price must needs to be paid. However, one such as he has little to give you, and you are likely to press too hard for what you believe you are owed. To this point, nobody has been harmed, and so the authorities on either side need not step in. To continue in the vein that you were pursuing, however, might lead to, uh, unfortunate consequences. Authorities? Consequences? Ben wasn't sure he liked the sound of that. Oh, yes... Botherby raised his voice. You did not know of those. Oh, dear. Have you may have heard of the Wild Hunt? Ben blinked. The phrase was vaguely familiar. That, uh, actually happens not as much these days in those of yore, unfortunately. Botherby said with a sigh. But yes, should Oberon or one of his subordinates catch wind of one of their subjects being tormented or misused by one such as you or me... Then the Wild hunters assembled. Fairy lore reigns that night, and the unfortunate miscreants find himself drawn into the Feylands, pursued by beasts strange and eldritch through the dark that never ends. Within a forest that stretches across the face of the world. He leaned forward and looked at Ben over his bifocals once more. Believe me, dear boy, that is a fate I would not wish upon my worst enemy. That... Uh, Legitimately sounded terrifying. Ben glanced at the creature who had been temporarily named Thistledown and considered freeing him, but sided against it. Fine, no mistreatment, but you say I'm still owed something. I want to collect it. And thus is your due, Botherby agreed. knocks of the matter? What is your wish? I would advise against gold or other natural riches for several reasons. Ben frowned. Uh, just out of curiosity, what reasons are those? Father B pushed his bifocals up his nose slightly, and cleared his throat in a professional fashion. Most folk who attempt to capture a member of the Fae seek out leprechauns, for their famed pots of gold. What they do not understand is that a leprechaun gold is fake gold, as with all other riches they might give you, taken by force from the Fae lands by one of us. It'll fade away to nothing with the morning dew. I myself maintain a vault of it. But in the Fay lands where it will remain good and true, it allows me to buy and sell favors amongst the fey folk, as part of my business dealings. Right, Ben was beginning to feel as though his entire efforts to this point had been for nothing, so uh, no gold or jewels or other stuff I could sell. He looked challengingly at Fotherby. What do you have to negotiate with, then? What can I get off Thistledown to pay the debt? Well, uh, that depends, Fotherby said. Why did you go to all this trouble? What do you need so badly? Ben grimaced. It's, uh... My sister. Uh, Our parents are dead, and and she's all I have in the world. She's got this uh, really rare disease in her bones that's, uh... Killing her. I, I don't have the money to pay for the treatments she needs, and, uh... Our health insurance won't cover her for it. I was out of answers. Grandma always used to talk about the old country. So, uh... This is my last option. Ah, said Fotherby in terms of irritated enlightenment. America, I see. Well, I have two options for you. You do? Ben hadn't even expected one. Certainly. Fotherby's smile was dry. As I said, I am here to negotiate. Therefore, I have some leeway. He brought the briefcase onto his lap and undid the latches with a sharp snap-snap. Lifting the lid, he turned towards Ben. Moonlight fell within, and Ben gasped. He'd never seen so much money before in one place. Bended stacks of $100 bills filling the leather case from side to side. "'Holy crap!' he muttered. "'Neither one nor the other,' Potherby corrected him, with the barest hint of humor, closing the lid once more. "'That money should pay for the treatment, yes?' Ben grimaced. "'Unless they hike up the price again, sure. Ah!' "'Yes,' Potherby sighed in sympathy. Well then, we still have the second option. I can reach out to some people in the Feylands who owe me a favor, all three, and they can cure her affliction. They can do that? Ben felt a surge of hope. Of course. Fatherby gave a humorless laugh. The Fey world works by different rules to those that govern you and I. She'll be entirely cured, but be warned, she and any children she has thereafter will forever be sensitive to Fey influences. If they go wandering, they may fall through the soft spots in the world and arrive in the Faeu Lands. They'll be returned safe and sound, of course, but perhaps fifty years later, or fifty years older. But if that happens, Ben said, could I reach out to someone like you to get them back? Indeed you can, clear boy. Then it's a deal, Ben sighed, and thought of all that money. But a certain cure was what he wanted. What would come later would happen. We are agreed then. Father reached out, and Ben shook his hand. Delightful doing business with you, dear boy. Reaching down, the negotiator flipped the net off the impotent bay. Be off with you, Thistle Down. The next time, be more careful, won't you? Muttering what sounded like a rude word, the tiny creature lofted into the air, clutching the cookie in both hands. It flew off into the darkness, vanishing almost immediately. Chuckling at his indignation, then turned to make a comment to Fotherby, only to find the fastidiously dressed man had vanished altogether. Well, yeah, he probably was back in London by now. It didn't really matter. Once he found his way back to his car, he could drive into the city. He couldn't wait to see his sister's face when she found out she was cured. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1754. Story number one. The Power of Metal written by Spartan R259. It wasn't supposed to happen. The Council was assured so many times that they could never delve so deep. But that has gone now. Our member nations are rushing a vote to demand either submission or annihilation before it's too late. Today, the 18th of Glorbund of the Galactic Year 582, since the founding, humanity found Mithril. Sol, Earth, Human Year 2290, Oberdeen Observation Vessel, Trafalgar. It is remarkable that such material can be found in nature, a metal so light that even common silicates weigh more on a total mass comparison, the perfect conductor for electrical systems, capable of transferring vast amounts of power through naught but a thread's equivalent, and so hard and dense after refinement. That a centimeter sheet is capable of withstanding the bombardment, other alloys would take a meter of thickness to withstand. And lastly, and most calming, so rare, that of all the myriad of species throughout the galaxy could produce little more than a few kilograms of refined mithril. That was until an in-depth survey of the fourth planet of the Sol system was carried out. It is now common practice to observe potential new member species for the Council. But over the decades, the process has become less common, as they only see members that will benefit them monetarily, so as to not waste resources on wasteful or cumbersome species. After initial observation, it was made known that humanity, as they called themselves, was adept at war, having little to no ceasing from some sort of combat or another throughout their entire time of observation. Clearly, if nothing else, they would make good soldiers, Science was also a drive for them, a never-ending search for knowledge. Twisting and bending every rule until it proved resilient or broke is how the humans improved, and their space age was an astounding testament to that. Though it seemed that after any initial interest and investment in such exploration, fewer and fewer ventures were had. Our observer noted that it was likely the obliteration a term we came to expect for fledglings. They would either flourish or die out. But neither end came. Humanity persisted as they seemed to have the world to bear against such a fate. Wars continued and life moved on, and the observers deemed the species too violent to left. Then as a last measure to rule out, the planet observers ran a geological survey, and what they found in abundance was mithril, so deep that only modern tools could excavate it, and with such abundance that entire fleets could be constructed, not just simple daggers or ornaments. This information was sent to the Council, all too late, as we know now, to deliberate. Finally, humanity made its next venture, not to the outer reaches of space, but to the depths of their planet, and what they found propelled a revolution of science, technology, and war. Great ships could be built twenty times the size for the steel counterparts at an equivalent weight. Wars were fought and won, and four factions reigned over the planet, and then again the race into space. No longer limited to such small craft, their ships could not fly to and from the planet with ease. They colonized their moon in the span of a year and delved further and faster than any before them. All the while the council panicked. Over the years, humanity unified to a greater or lesser extent as factions shifted, gained, and lost power. And still, the Council did nothing. When at last humanity colonized the fifth planet of their system, the order came. Annihilation. As such, we have finally been given the order to cease observations and leave the humans to their fate. Thus ends the report and the timeline for Trafalgar and its tour of duty. The captain leaned back in his chair and sent a report to his superiors. Standing, he made his way to the command deck and began to make the ship ready for a jump out. Sir, one of the comms officers made a request and flagged him down. You need to see this. The captain made his way to the station and looked over the crewman's screen. Undeclared vessel, identify immediately. The captain recognized the language, human English. His hands went cold and he made a call to sensors operator. What is out there, Lieutenant? Sir, I'm detecting a human vessel burning hot in Intercept. ETA four minutes, he called. The captain fidgeted. How did they find us? House Dalth Tech should still far exceed them. Another call from the comm. Sir, a new message. Let's hear it, the captain said. Undeclared vessel, this is the captain of the UEG Greyhound. Please identify. Clear now that the ship was true, fully viewed somehow, the captain faltered for a moment and after going through the logistics of the options ordered. Open channel. This is Captain Aubuddin Observation Vessel Trafalgar. I mean you no harm. We have been watching you for some time now. The message translated into English on a prayer that this violent race wouldn't simply vaporize them. Copy that, Trafalgar. Please be on your way. UEG space is restricted until further notice. Next time, make sure you have a flight plan. Grey Round out. The message that came through was confusing to the captain. But he took it in his stride. Status. Sir, the human ship has halted intercept and is moving back in system. Jump drive ready, sir, chimed the navigation. Get us out of here and report back when we are in Federation space. The captain stood and made his way back to his ready room. I need to write another letter, he thought to himself. Humans can see through the stealth deck. Aboard the Greyhound. Captain, what the hell was that? The first officer, Luke, asked. If I were being strictly official, I would say that that was first contact, the captain said. Luke frowned. Sir, we were out here after a report of a couple kids joyriding in a luxury yacht, the captain smiled. That we were, but I would say that this is a little above our pay grade, don't you think? Log the encounter and forward it to the precinct with correct tags. I think we may be getting some company soon. Yes, sir, Luke said, attaching the recording and captured data burst. So to the regional precinct To the regional precinct Urgent First contact Hashtag This means war Hashtag What goes around UEG Greyhound Warden of Saturn We are about To have company Alert the fleet End Of story Story Number two The way they expand Written by Scarax. In the galaxy Every species expands The same way You get to a new planet Build the minimum Required to claim it and get to the next planet, rinse and repeat. This has resulted in massive empires expanding akin to webs where planets change hands like currency, and meaningful development only happens on those points of extreme importance. But humanity was different, each planet totally conquered and developed, totally consumed by the human horde in their slow grinding advance on the galaxy. At first, Many empires followed their standard procedures, granting gifts in the forms of planets near the new species. What a mistake this was. The humans landed on these worlds, and I saw for myself the total conquest. Our small outposts became a city, then a capital, then a member of the Terran Republic. A glorified breeding ground for more humans. They reproduced so quickly, every world became overpopulated and served to justify further expansion. The Koskwe recognized this threat for what it was, but their simple imperial war machine was no match for what I learned was called the military-industrial complex. When war broke out, the Terrans threw it into full swing. They may have only boosted thirty worlds, but each was an industrial powerhouse. Hundreds of warships a month, millions of recruits, and unlike their expansion, they struck swiftly. The poor Koskwe had their empire gutted and demilitarized under sheer numbers and became puppets of the humans. Others, like the Mokith Kith and my own kin, Voltal, tried mimicking the humans to various levels of success. The power structure, nay, eh, the very culture of the galaxy has been forever changed. Gone is the time of empires, and now begins the age of the industrial carnage, the age of colonization, the age of humanity. End of story. Story number three. Enough. Written by Simone Angela. We Ascari are a solemn species. It comes naturally when the average Joe from your hometown might be older than writing of the species you are talking to. It also makes it difficult to truly connect with Xenos. Almost everyone but our most radical xenophobes burn forever by loss after loss. When the humans joined us across the stars, they were amazed. We had all the technology they had dreamed of, and more. We were fascinating to them, and at their initial reverence, we were afraid they would take the path of some of the not-exactly-intelligent species and worship us as gods. Our fears were unfounded, fortunately. Instead, they asked to learn. Imagine our surprise. Not pleading, not threatening, not even guilt-tripping. They were just really curious and wanted to learn. That got our attention. In fact, that got so much attention that we, for the first time in, well, forever, were truly invested in a species. They wanted to learn from us, then we would learn about them. I was one of the first to migrate to Terra, and I have never regretted it. Everything about humans just screams variety, change, and innovation. I myself made a breakthrough in white dwarf anatomy theory by observing their fireworks it stands to reason then that i be the one documenting the mark that this wondrous species has and will leave on the universe the fondest memory of my time on Terra prior to its destruction will always be the discussion i had with the philosophy professor such an advanced field i nearly squealed when i saw the faculty name near the initial months of my stay in which he explained to me the peculiar concept of the human condition. You see, humans evolved too fast, or at least their society did. They went from jungle primates to hominids in half a million years, and from then they just kept accelerating. 300,000 and they were hunter-gatherers, 100,000 and stable societies formed, 10,000 and Neil Armstrong walks in Luna. They uncovered secrets of the universe with a brain that was still optimized to living in a straw hut. This leads to so high amount of youth suffering from existential despair that it is considered a rite of passage by many to survive their first existential crisis. The most common answer to the crisis, he told me, is to accept that you are enough. When he first told me that, I was stunned. That would have been the most unsatisfactory answer for most members of our species. After all, we have all the time we need to learn and improve ourselves, to push the limits and break through every block, every doubt that worms in our hearts. There weren't some fortunate. The constant looming presence of death only added to the horrors encroaching on the human mind. Enough. What a beautiful word. Everyone used it, but not like the humans... They accept that they are enough. Mostly. Mostly. The few that don't are incredible individuals. They may have a spark inside, something more that drives them to new heights. That spark that will push a human to look up to the mountains he's climbing and walk faster. That will see a new branch of science born out of the idle musings of a madman. That would eventually be the ruin of the row. The humans are not enough. They are not smart enough to truly comprehend the fundamental secrets of the universe. But they are smart enough to mourn this loss. For me, though, they are more than enough. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1755. Humans are brainwashed. Written by Chronic Boom 3. Transcription started. Hello, this is Dr. Quack Reeves. Today I'll be conducting an interview with our subject. For the record, today's date is the 5th of the 4th quarter calendar, calendar date 8910-3. The subject in question that I'll be interviewing is a pre-modern species, Hoja, in relation to its experiences prior to the acquisition of said subject. Subject is male, roughly 340 substandard units tall when within a bipedal stance, and 180 substandard units tall when within a quadrupedal stance. Subject age is unknown, but assumed to be within full development range. Biological deterioration due to age has yet to occur, suggesting that the subject may be younger than assumed and may be referred to as partially juvenile. Subject has been within our care since the 23rd of the first quarter calendar, of some same calendar date. Subject has obtained prior training to ensure the safety of personnel, and the docility of the subject. Subject has also received language training, trained in the regional dialect of the majority of Puja tribes present around subject's original location. The purpose of this interview is to hopefully obtain further insights into the anthropological origins of the culture among sapient species, and how that culture develops in relation to social and environmental conditions. Subject was selected for this interview because of its unusual origins, of having never interacted with another sapient species prior to the subject's capture. As required by law, I am required to state my species, sex, and physical appearance to avoid potential contaminations of subject responses, as well as to provide context to subject's behavior. Note that the subject has yet to be exposed to my species, and may act with hostility, fear, and or stress, which has previously been observed with Pooja subjects, and therefore is no cause for alarm. I, Quack Reeves, the interviewer, am of the modern species, Zacharak. I am a male of my species, and I am fifty-three substandard units from head to tail. I have light brown fur covering my whole body, and possess two arms which extend from my shoulders. The brain, as well as my sensory organs, are contained within my skull, which sits above the shoulders. I do not possess any legs or any other locomotive appendages, and instead slither around on the ground, My diet consists mainly of meats, however, I am capable of consuming some species of nuts, native to my homeworld. I am currently adorned with standard research vest, and are otherwise nude. I acknowledge and accept responsibility that should I fail to accurately describe my appearance, biology, physical attributes, etc., I shall receive reprimand up to and including jail time and or demotion. Accompanying me is an emotional support human, which may be used to calm the subject down. Should any complications arise, Jake, please state your full name, appearance, and disclosure. Additional subject identified, Jake. Um, hi, uh, I'm Jake, uh, Jake Martinez. I am, uh, 153 uh, sub uh, and substandard units tall. Oh, oh, right, I- I'm also human. Uh, I mean, I am of the pre-modern species human. Uh, I'm a male, and I have blonde hair uh, and brown eyes... I am a bipedal. Jake, I need you to specify that you only have hair in certain places, please. Oh right, Doc. Uh, sorry. Doc uh, Transmission Amendment. Doc. Human English slang for Doctor. Right, uh, So I only have hair on my head and in some other places, like my armpits groin and above the eyes. The doc told me that I apparently have a calming appearance for the uh poja. Uh, because I somehow remind them of their children, which are also apparently hairless? That's, uh, not entirely relevant for the interview, Jake. Just describe your appearance for me, please. Right, uh, sorry, okay, uh, so I'm bipedal, meaning I have two legs, which I use to walk around, and I have two arms, which connect at the shoulders. I also have a skull like the docks, where my brain and eyes and such are located. Transcription amendment by such, Jake, means the rest of his sensory organs. Humans tend to value vision more than their other five senses. So, uh, what else did you want me to say, Doc? Tell them what your diet is and what you are wearing. Then please read out the disclosure for me. Right, okay, uh, so I'm omnivorous, meaning I eat meat and plants, uh, not all plants, just some, oh, and it has to be cooked first, too, uh, and, um, uh, I'm wearing pants and jeans right now as well as shoes and socks and, uh, glasses as well, uh, Oh, and boxes too. Can't forget about those. It is not. if you're unfamiliar with these items of clothing, please see the addendums at the end of this report. Okay, so, a disclosure. Uh, uh, I, Jake Martinez, acknowledge and accept responsibility that should I fail to accurately describe my appearance, biology, physical attributes, etc., I shall receive reprimand up to and including jail time and order motion. Okay, good job, Jake. You may sit down if you wish. I am going to let them in now. Just follow my instructions and you will turn out fine. Subject Jake temporarily removed from transcription index. Sounds of door opening and closing. Pooja enters by a quadrupedal locomotion. Pooja does not possess any garments on its person. Pooja is covered in blonde-colored fur over its whole body. Pooja does not appear to have sustained major injuries. However, signs of previous lacerations are visible in the forms of scars. Pooja shows aggression towards Dr. Reeves, baring its teeth and fattening its ears. Pooja shows concern for Jake and attempts to move Jake away from the doctor. Jake looks for approval from Reeves and Reeves nods. An affirmation sign in human body language. Pooja grabs Jake's arm, pulling him away from Reeves, wrapping its arms around him. Whilst retreating to the right side corner of the room, Jake shows signs of agitation, fear, and embarrassment. However, does not attempt to move away from the subject. After a few microcycles, subject shows signs of calming down. Doctor Reeves attempts to initiate dialogue. "Hello, my name is Doctor Reeves. Though, if it is easier for you, you may refer to me as Reeves." Note, subject refused to wear translation implements, therefore translated vocalizations were broadcasting through the room's announcement speaker. Subject refused to respond. I assure you I'm not here to cause you harm. Your friend there is named Jake. Do you have a name? Subject looks down at Jake with confusion. Jake smiles back and waves. A human greeting. Jake shows signs of moderate worry. Subject looks back to Dr. Reeves. Subject speaks. Name? Subject shows signs of not understanding. Reeves. Yes, your name. Do you call yourself anything? Subject does not respond. Subject looks back down to Jake and sniffs his hair. Subject speaks once more. Fear. Jake is nervous, is he? Don't worry, he's fine. He's just unfamiliar with your kind. Just like you are nervous about me, right? Subject hugs Jake tighter. Jake makes a surprised vocalization. Subject shows signs of curiosity prodding at Jake's clothing. Subject brings a claw to clothing, ripping it experimentally. Jake stirs uncomfortably. Jake re-added to transcription index. Uh, hey, uh, please don't do that. Subject added to transcription index as subject. What? Subject pulls at Jake's shirt. Jake looks back to Reeves for clarification. I believe he's asking what you're wearing, Jake. It's, uh, just my shirt. Please don't rip it. Subject disregards last statement and rips the shirt playfully. Reeves, can I ask you some questions? Subject does not respond. Subject ignores last statement. Subject sniffs Jake's hair again. Subject starts licking the hair. Subject shows signs of scenting. Reeves laughs. It appears that he's claimed you, Jake. Jake sighs. Don't feel so ashamed, Jake. This is why I asked for you, after all. In fact, this is already some great progress. Notice how he's not even concerned about me anymore. We usually don't see this level of trust in a Puja until they have been exposed to us for about a day. Jake sighs again. Well, uh, I'm glad my discomfort has advanced science in some way. Actually, I was wondering about that. Do you really feel uncomfortable with what he's doing right now? I would assume that you would actually find it soothing. I have heard the humans used to have a history of grooming each other. I also know that you are fairly social creatures, and that contact with one another can be very important. What exactly do you find uncomfortable right now? Jake looks at Reeves, confused. Uh, Aren't you supposed to be asking him these sorts of questions? Technically, yes. But it might be beneficial to let him get confident with us. I don't think we will be able to or willing to do so anyways right now. Also, don't forget, you are also a pre-modern species. The galactic community still has a lot to learn about you. And believe me, there is a lot to be learned. What do you mean? What I mean is your ability to adapt to your environment. Humans are actually the highest ranking when it comes to adaptability. You learn new things at an incredible rate. So much so, that your human anthropologist just might be able to put me out of a job in a few years. Reeves laughs. Uh, There's got to be more to it than that. Is that really why Earth is in such a mess right now? Reeves sighs. Reeves, unfortunately, yes, it's really that simple. You see, humans aren't just adaptable. You rely on your adaptability so much so that it is your main survival tactic. As you can probably tell, you don't really have much in the department of natural weaponry, especially when you look at the Pooja. But what is so fascinating, and what makes you special, is that you don't need any. You are the definition of the underdog on your planet. Yet. You managed to dominate your planet. But, back to my main question. I want to understand your psychology. Is there any reason why you don't like the Pooja grooming you? Jake takes a few moments to think. It makes me feel embarrassed. Would you care to elaborate? Well, uh, I don't really know. I just, uh, feels like something I shouldn't be doing. But your biology would suggest otherwise. It should be beneficial for you to allow him to groove you. So you could theoretically prevent parasites. Not that I'm saying that you do. But your evolutionary history, as far as I am aware, shouldn't discourage this sort of thing. There is little net loss for a potentially huge gain, saving your life. I don't really know what you expect me to say, Doc, but... Uh, I, I'm just a university kid. I, I, I think you should be asking these questions to a human doctor. Uh, I don't really know the ins and outs of how we work... Uh, I guess it's just the culture that makes me feel this way. The culture? Yeah. Um, I guess the things we'd seen as childish if another human saw me like this, like I was being coddled or something, do you personally think that it is childish? Yeah, a little. It feels too, uh, intimate. Like he's trying to say that he's my guardian or something. Makes me feel uh, dependent, like, uh, I-, I can't take care of myself properly. You realize this is completely natural exchange, right? If I am not mistaken, even some of your closest evolutionary relatives do the same thing. I wouldn't say that this is something to be ashamed of. You are offering invaluable assistance to me, Jake. You should celebrate that. You are helping to understand not only yourself, but another species as well. This could potentially save lives. Are you not proud of that? Jake does not respond. The subject gets Jake's attention. Fear, Jake, fear, no. The subject hugs Jake again. Jake control, Jake control, no Jake. Subject appears to be thinking of a word. Jake, bad alpha, bad alpha, Jake control, new alpha. Is he calling me a bad alpha? No, Jake, fear bad alpha, I fear bad alpha, and I alone, I new alpha. No, you don't understand, I, I don't fear anybody. I just, it's just my culture. Culture bad, Alpha. Culture control. Culture not here. But Jake fear culture. But Jake brainwashed. Note, this is unknown how the subject knew the word brainwashed. With its limited vocabulary, theories suggest relation to the subject's past. Reeves, you know, I think he's right, Jake. I think you are forgetting that you are still an animal. When's the last time you've done anything like this? When's the last time that you've had someone show you affection like this? Again, Jake does not respond. Likely indication of negative response. Transcription ended. After interview observations, whilst the original purpose of the interview was largely a failure, valuable insights into the human mind have been obtained. It appears that humans are not entirely the rational creatures we assume them of because of their staggering technological progress. Several instances in this interview did I question the mental health of Jake as much as his behavior had either disregarded or acted defiantly towards his nature. It has been proven that acting in such a way can be troublesome for many sapient species in the galactic community, causing unnecessary sadness, resentment, or stress in an individual. Much of what I observed regarding Jake's cultural misgivings were either obstructive, detrimental, or malicious towards me, nor the Pooja which brings into question why human culture developed in such a way to discourage these behaviors. I currently do not know why human cultures tend to discourage intimacy, but any potential reason, such as population control or a value for independence, no longer seem relevant to the current human world, fraud as it is. I question why these cultural taboos continue to exist, and what purpose they serve to the human mind and all the powers above them. I also question why many humans appear to take these values to heart. It is both fascinating and disturbing to observe as the human act in disregard to their own self-interest, despite such actions not conflicting with their moral values. Furthermore, humans often seem to have discrepancies when it comes to such moral values if and when they conflict with societal values. What is fascinating is that humans will often prioritize their societal values over their moral values and personal interest. What is horrifying is that often these societal values are harmful or detrimental to the majority of humans. Due to these discoveries, I will be issuing a formal complaint to the United Nations, the Independent Nations of Earth, and the Alliance of Territories of Earth in regards to the breaches of sapient rights and will be calling upon the galactic community to conduct a thorough investigation into such breaches. I'll be personally counseling Jake as well as any other human students currently on campus to one, try and reverse this brainwashing, and two, to try and discover the potential purpose and or potential threats these cultural values may pose to both humans and any other sapiens who wish to integrate into the culture. Dr. Quack Reeves, GC International University. Tales from Outer Space 1756 Story number one. But is it human proof? Written by Luke was not here. For some reason, you have a human or humans working for you. Now this may seem like a sort of punishment, divine or otherwise, but we promise you it's not that bad. However, having us around comes with certain difficulties. And thus this pamphlet, translated to whatever you're reading the sin. There are many things that can go wrong with us around. Nevertheless, there is one thing you should worry about the most. First, let us preface that humans, like all species, are unique, so this may not apply to everyone. But if they're from Bukunua or Legacy, chances are much higher. That chance being that we'll break something. By something we mean anything. It can be small, like electronics. Legacies are great at that. Or Machinery. If they're from Bakunawa, they probably already have. It can be a bit too, like an empire. But the chances of that happening again are quite low. So safe to say, anything is possible. Yes, even that. The thing nobody has broken before. We'll find a way. It won't even be on purpose. We humans are a curious species, and curiosity can lead to accidental destruction. Which begs the question... How do you stop humans from breaking your nice things? Well, we have good news and uh, bad news. Bad news? You really can't. Accidents happen, important things will be in pieces. Little things will be dropped and stepped on. Things that should not be bent Well, Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and at the worst possible time. Good news. Humans think aliens are cool. The fact that humans work for you is because they want to. We as a species were alone for so long, and now you're all here. We want you to like us, which means we'll be far more careful than normal. So accidents will happen. To a far lesser degree. So when you build and repair things, try to break it. And once you can't anymore, it'll be far more resilient to us. Follow the KISS acronym, Keep It Simple Stupid. Nonetheless, we will still break things, and we'll also fix them. The person in front of you is the best of us. They're the smartest and strongest, the most curious. They decided to go on your ships and your schools to learn to be better humans by being more like you. So don't be too hard on us, please. And always remember, when you're building or fixing something, ask yourself a simple question. But is it human-proof? End of story. Story number two. Skulking Hunter, written by Fated Apollo. The hunter stalked through the corridor of the five-story apartment building, clawed feet, quietly tapping on the dark, composite floor. The hunter was slowly approaching the door, leading to where their prey waited. A claw hand with black, short fur grabbed the handle and gently pushed it down. The door slid silently open, just enough to let the hunter through. Pushing the door almost closed to not make a sound, the hunter stalked into the gloomy room. A hallway awaited the hunter. Smells of prey and the outdoors lingered on the clothes hanging in the room. The hunter stepped over the shoes in the hallway and passed the jackets, pausing a moment to listen for any signs of alert, but hearing none. The hunter crept on. The room right behind was a living room, and immediately the hunter spotted the prey, slouching on the couch reading a book. A smile crept onto the hunter's face, showing white, sharp teeth. Red eyes observed the prey, while the hunter stalked the shadows ever closer. Slowly, to not make a sound, the hunter crept up towards the couch. The large pink-slash-brown alien had no idea what was... Hey, kiddo! The brace said without looking. The hunter sighed and threw her arms up in frustration. How did you spot me this time? The human Daniel looked over his shoulder, smiling. Your hint is light. He turned back to the book. The hunter, also known as Sola, scratched her chin, like she had seen Daniel do when he was thinking. She looked back towards the door and saw the light streaming in from the corridor outside. Thinking for a bit, she wondered how much light spilled in from the doorway. "'You saw the light when I opened the door?' "'Yeah. Uh, The white walls in the hallway lit up,' Daniel said. Sola stood there a bit, wondering if she could make sure Daniel's hallway was bright next time. Or maybe she could turn off the lights in the corridor. She padded over to the couch and held out her arms towards Daniel. He put his book down and lifted Sola up and plopped her down on his lap. "'Better luck next time, kiddo.' "'What are you reading?' she asked, decided to put her plans for the next ambush off for now. A book on local flora, Daniel said, putting an arm around Sola and picking up the book again. Is it interesting, she asked, and leaned back against him, looking at the book written in human writing. Not really, he said, owning a giggle from Sola, but it is informative. Why not read a fun book? Because I want to eat something new. The food I know is safe for humans to eat leaves something to d- be desired in diversity. And I want to eat cake. I might be able to make you something as well, Daniel said. I would like that very much, thank you, Soda said seriously. Daniel laughed. I'll have to step up my efforts then, and it's getting late. When is your bedtime, young lady? In two hours. It's a holiday tomorrow. I don't remember which one, Soda said, her eyes feeling heavy. Long weekend, huh? So you decided to sneak away from your mother and pester me for a bit, Daniel asked, turning the page. Hmm, I can almost sneak up on you now, Sola said sleepily. In your dreams, you little monster, Daniel said, and patted her head. Sola giggled and swiped at his hand, but he was too quick and he pulled it away. She settled for grabbing his arm and resting her head against his chest. I'll get you tomorrow, Sola said with a yawn. There was a knock on the still-open door, and a moment later, Solu's mom peeked inside. "'So this is where you ran off to. I was wondering where you were hiding, Solu's mom, Sela,' said smiling as she walked over. "'Hope she had not been in too much trouble, Daniel.' "'Not at all, Mrs. Javon,' Daniel said. "'Please call me Sela. What are you reading?' "'Oh, it's a book on local flora. I was just thinking about—' "'The adults continued to talk about stuff adults talk about. Weather and work and plans—' Sola quickly determined that she was not interested in what was being said, so she closed her eyes, listening to the rumbling in Daniel's chest as he spoke. She felt a warm hand, gently stroking her head, and after a long day of school and skulking, the small hunter quickly fell asleep. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1757 Story number one. Human Steel. Written by Glacial Fury. The forge hall glowed orange under the mountain. Darkoflow raised his voice to be heard over the hammering ringing on steel. Aye, he said. That's what they're saying. Human steel's strong as dwarf mythium." Manius, the forge master, brought up his heavy shaping hammer, whistling down on a piece of glowing metal. Sparks leapt off the anvil in a fiery arc that died in the dimness of the vast underground chamber. Again. And again, the hammer fell, and Manus slowly forced the metal to yield to his will. Said that, did they? Manus' voice was gruff with a slight rasp from centuries of laboring in the dim heat and haze under the mountain. Talk's only talk, he said, with a continued to work, his heavy hammer guided effortlessly by the heavy-muscled arm. What's King Bronze say? Dockerflow agreed that talk was empty air until proven otherwise. But the humans were confident in their improvements and dwarven techniques, and this time they said proof. King Braun said the forge all is yours and by rights your decision, Dockerfler said, crossing his arms over his tunic, suddenly feeling a bit out of place. He was the only dwarf present who wasn't wearing a beard apron, bare-chested, with slag-scarred hands and soot settled into the muscular grooves of his chest. Raised to be an ambassador, like his father before him, Dock would never wield a hammer in the forge hall. Whatever you decide, he supports you. Also, said the Deren fools should know after all these years. Manus traded his hammer for a pair of large pincers and took up the glowing metal. The work was part of him, ingrained in his bones. He no longer needed to think about what must be done. His hands simply made it happen. Nay, smiles split white above the beard apron. Ay, I know. Still good to hear. A good dwarf making. The water in the trough hissed and frothed when Manners thrust the steel into its embrace. All around, dwarves worked similar anvil platforms, fronting the long rows of forges carved directly into the stone of the mountain. Their muscled backs glistened in the orange shadows of the forge hall. Manus retracted the newly quenched metal from the trough and tossed it into the glowing maw of the forge, turning to look at Dockofler for the first time. His face was flat and hammered like a metal he worked, with dusky grey eyes lined on both sides, honed sharp, with the wisdom of only age can bring. He pursed his lips, a slight pinching together of the moustache and beard apron. I see no arm having a moment about. So long as they don't cause my dwarves trouble. Yeah, you'll be along convincing one of my boys they'll be wanting to spend any time in a human city, working with them, what they call the smithies. Dockofler agreed, save one thing. Got me a volunteer? He fought back the grin that twitched on his lips as a surprise on Manus' face. Volunteer? Aye, Dockofler said, pointing down the line of forges to a distant figure with a hair color of fire, broad of shoulders, and muscled as any dwarf had ever been. Athel's eager to see the human lands, and uh, what they're about. Uh, The old stories have his beard filled with wonders. Uh, He was quick to volunteer, he was. Manus followed D'Aquifer's finger across the great chamber. You talk to me dwarves without meself first, anger stammered under the flat calm of his voice. Athel, is it? He's a pup with nigh a hundred years under his head. Can't be to him drapes off to the god knows where with such a tender age. Manus was shaking his head firmly. Maybe another fifty or hundred years and he can go. You hadn't seen a century when ye you started your travels, Dock pointed out. Terrible to, to ever steal. Before ye was a hundred, Ye did. Manus looked at him sharply, lips pursed again, considering. Aye, I, I remember flu said, it was all the grand affair, and ye argued with your father and the forchmaster, yet ye was more old than enough to go. I remember he thought as ye did now, but relented in the end, hard to let go, they say. Manus lifted his chin a stubborn light in those gray eyes, then he sighed and blew out his moustache, scrubbing a gnawed hand across his face. Ay, I, I remember well. Dwarf he said, his eyes momentarily misting with memories. Send the pup, then. But hear me well, dwarf. Manus smashed the tip of his nose into Docklifer's, stabbing the stubby finger into the delicate fabric of his tunic. If anything befalls the lad while he's away, I'll be coming for your beard, and don't ye be thinking there'll be anything to stop me. Boccafla believed him, spreading his hands wide and nodding in understanding. I'll be looking after the young stallion, I will. No arm will come to him on my beard. Manus stepped back, seemingly mollified. Good. Good, I understand. Then these humans of yours sent a sample. Boccafla smiled, slipping a hand inside of his tunic. It was a black satin scabbard traced by polished silver. The blade hissed from its sheath, the soft whisper of a master craftsmanship, polished steel, and dark blue swirls running along the gleaming length. Manus's eyes fell upon it with a grudging appreciation. Aye, was all the forge master managed to say. His eyes were mesmerized by the magnificent weapon, and how the light played over the rich steel. It was perfectly balanced and light in his hand. A pleasure to hold. He ran a thumb along the razor fine edge, whistling in appreciation. Then his face jerked up. Human steel! I plain old iron, I pulled out of the ills under their keep. Not a fleck of lithium in it. Manus's brows tried to lift right off his forehead, and he nodded, moving towards the testing bench. He hammered at the sword, vented in vice, and Dockofler watched it spring back into shape. Good as ever. Manus doused it with acid, beat it with chisels, and subjected it to blue swirling steel to every torture shy of tossing it into the molten depths of a volcano. When he finished, he scrubbed sweat from his brow and turned to Dockofler. Something strange glinted in his eyes. Send word to your humans, his voice was gruff, grudging and impressed. We accept their offer and exchange our ways. His eyes went back to the sword, then returned to Dockofler. In all me years, I've never had a blade steel with such strength and durability. If they will be sharing their secrets, we'll be listening. I have the parchment written in my chamber, Dockofler said. Just need yours in the King's Seal for the Devacate. Aye, do it. Manus held a sword in his arm's length, admiring how the forge hall's orange light ran warm along the metal. Only a stubborn old fool would turn away from learning how to work the metal with such mastery, even from a human. Might be, it's the truth. End of story. Story number two. Sol 1000, written by Glitchkey. Come, what are the requirements for me to race into Sol 1000? Your ship does not meet the minimum safety specifications, i am aware of that. What are the minimum safety specifications and how much would a retrofit cost? Minimum safety specifications for the Sol 1000 are... M-Spec Gravity Stabilization for Pilot Capsule, 10,000 credits. M-Spec Shielding against Heat, Coal, Pressure, Vacuum, EM, Kinetic and Magnetic Damage, 40,000 credits. M-Spec Aerodynamics Hull Rebuild, 100,000 credits. M-Spec self powered Wormhole-Based Emergency Escape Device for Pilot Capsule, 90,000 credits. M-Spec Thrust Control and Deacceleration Modifications to All Forms of Mobility, 30,000 credits. Miscellaneous Other Small Modifications for Pilot Safety, 123,000 credits. A Full Retrofit would be a total of approximately 393,000 credits and a similar cost. Would be required to downgrade your ship if you wish to participate in a standard intergalactic circuit event. Afterwards, no, oh. well, um, my occupied mid-range battle cruiser for that. What am I going to be doing? Driving into a gas giant? Y- yes. Hey, slightly past the halfway point in the race, you would be expected to take a twenty-mile dive into the fifth plant in the system through a jump ring installed deep within the atmosphere for the race. Is that the most dangerous part of the race? Statistically, that is the least dangerous major obstacle. Computer, list the primary obstacles for the Sol 1000 in order from least to most dangerous. Amit the gas giant. In order from least to most dangerous. You will make a run through the system's outer debris field at relativistic speeds. You will make a ten-mile run through the moon made primarily of water. You will run along the surface of their star for one hundred miles. You will run through a large, abandoned colony station maintained explicitly for the Sol 1000. You will run through the detritus of a hundred-year-old battle with live mines and active military drones which will attempt to intercept and destroy any nearby craft. Well, uh, computer, what are the expected benefits if I do well in the Sol 1000? The sponsor value of a player who places in the top three in the Sol 1000 increases by an average of 5,000%. With rapidly diminishing returns for every human race participated in until the 10th, at which point pilots are banned from the standard intergalactic circuit under the same policies that ban humans as a hazard to the well-being of races. Yeah, yeah, another rules. <sighs> Earlier you started to upgrade specifications were higher than military spec. Uh, do those specifications have a name? Officially, there is no name for a build specifications of that kind of a... Unofficially, they are referred to as... Uh, human Spec. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1758. Story number one. The Hunt, Id. Written by Sriana Vardson. We should give it back. We have enough other... No! Yuri he cut them off. The gold is fine, but this thing is a real payday. You don't even know that. Rhett flared their thrill, their claws ticking against each other's impatiently. Put it back, and let's get out of here. Curie growled and stood as tall as possible. Their thrill fled, and all four of their clawed arms raised as if to strike. This is my job! I call the stakes. Are you in a rat? Rhett's thrill retracted, and they put their hands behind them in submission. You are correct. This is your job. I called the last one. Good. Now find out what you can about these creatures. They turned the device over in their hands, wondering at the odd markings and the small buttons. Curie was not foolish enough to push any of the buttons, as it could do anything, including blow up in their face. The two retraced the stems through the strange plants to the ship. This planet had strange tall plants with hard stems, that grew to as much as a hundred son or more, despite the gravity nearly twice of their homeworld. If not for their exosuits, they would not have been able to undertake this little job. It was worth it, though. The drones had picked up nearly a thousand gurn of gold, maxing their ship out with takeoff from the steeper and average gravity well. They were nearly at their ship when they heard it. One of the creatures was making noises at them. They ducked behind one of the tall plants and hid, Rat, what have you learned? They are called humans. Uh, one and a half to 2 sun tall. Curry nodded. High gravity, planet. Small creatures make sense. Diet? They are omnivores. Curry scratched his belly thoughtfully. Claws, teeth, Fannon? None. Rat turned the device to show Curry the picture of the humans. Excellent! Curry flapped his pearl in mirth. Scavengers, no problem. We'll have fresh meat tonight. Top running speed? Their record speed is 11.2 sun per tack. Bah, less than half our speed. And we can do that easily in the exosuits, even here. Fire up the translator. Red assumed a posture of submission. Respectfully, we should give it back. It is says here that humans are- opt- Enough for you! Geary snatched the device, a claw drawing an orange gash across the back of Rhett's stand doing so. They turned on the translation and called out, Hey human, if you don't turn back now, we'll turn you into dinner. The human called back, you, untranslatable. I will untranslatable you up so bad that your own parental unit won't recognize you. Good, Curie called out. Dinner it is. We'll give you a head start. No sooner had Curie said it than a rock struck them on the head. Orange blood ran down their face. It's not bad enough you destroyed my grain crop field, but you took my distance control control at distance too. Another rock whizzed past Kiri's ear, and they grabbed Rhett. Let's return the ship and treat our wounds. Then we'll kill the human and eat it. But, Kiri, humans are... stow it! The two ran at their top speed, losing the human in no time at all. They pulled up short, blowing and panting at their ship. Surrounding the ship were chains of ferrous alloy held together by a locking of similar alloy. The chains had been placed such that there was no way to open the ship let cut the cursed chain.' "'The cutter were to life, and the human emerged from the trees, still staying at a claw distance. "'Surprise, untranslatables! I followed your drones and locked my gold up tight. "'Now hand over the distance, control, control at distance, and I'll let you live.' Kieran crouched to charge and was struck in the shoulder with another sharp rock. "'Curses on the ancestors!' Currie yelled. "'Run!' Again, the two of them quickly lost sight of the human and stopped to rest. Their breathing was ragged, and they both felt ill effects of overheating. We've lost the human now. Once we catch our breath, we'll cut the chains and leave, Geary said. I don't want to eat human meat that much. Probably tastes disgusting. Rhett said, It probably won't be that easy. Like I've been trying to tell you, humans are- Stow it, Gary growled. You're driving me crazy with this. It's like you've gone swaying over the humans all of a sudden. I have an owl, Red recoiled from the rock that hit him in the back of the neck. I'm not done with you untranslatables, the human yelled. Again, the two ran, racing deeper within the tall plants. While they could easily outrun the human, they couldn't go very far. And each time they ran, they overheated sooner. They dropped to all sixes, gasping for breath, trying to increase the cooling from the exosuits. It still wasn't enough, and Rhett was feeling especially ill. Humans, Uh ah, Rhett said. So, it can throw rocks, Curie managed to gasp out between deep, gulping breaths. Let me get close and... And what? the human asked. The two scrambled to their feet and ran off as quickly as they could, but they couldn't get out of sight of the human before they'd have to stop again. The human was still running, as if it was a casual walk, although its pace wasn't fast. It didn't slow down as it bent down to snatch up a rock and throw at them while they ran. It barely seemed wounded. They tried to run again, and Red fell immediately, losing consciousness. Curie kept trying to run, out of breath, their mind in a whirl from overheating. Then they too fell unconscious. Curie was shocked away by a deluge of cold water from a bucket. The human had emptied the gold from their ship and loaded it into a trailer pulled by a ground vehicle and also had a device in its hands and waggled it in front of them. I'm not a female gendered adult to be trifled with. Now, get out of here before I change my mind and bury you both in the holes you dug in my field. Untranslatable you and the four-footed beast of burden you rode in on. The human clicked a button on the device and the ground vehicle started. Clicking several more times on the different buttons, the vehicle started making loud, rhythmic noises with a harmonic synchrony. Something... That pass for music amongst humans, Curie thought. As the human left, Curie looked at Rhett and assumed a posture of submission. I'm sorry. I let you down and let us be bested by a scavenger that throws rocks. Rhett flapped that gill in a gesture of negation. No. Like I tried to tell you, humans are not scavengers. They can't be predators. They have no weapons. Rhett raised one of their frills under the are-you-sure gesture. And how did the human best us? Rocks and a good throwing arm isn't this gravity. No. Persistence. It definitely was persistence. No. I'm trying to tell you humans are persistence predators. That is their weapon. What? What does that even mean? They evolved to run their prey to death. End of story. Story number two. Deadly first contact written by Luke was not here. Dear diary, even saying their name strikes fear into the bravest of us. Why wouldn't it? Even us, the fools who dared, fight the Queen. How would? That's what Earth was supposed to be. Our divine punishment. I've learned too unstable to have intelligent life. Yet, they persisted. We captured one of those things. It looked far too similar to us. Hair only on its heads. Our eyes reversed. A black pupil with a white around it. Hard-colored skin, light brown. He was male, though, so it had to be weak. It looked childlike compared to us. We strapped him to a chair and filled him with enough drugs to knock out any beast. It did not matter. It woke up. Why did it have to wake up? The doctors and scientists looked at me in fear, but I urged them to continue. Why did I make them? I thought tying its hands and feet were enough. He faked weakness, not entering a cell. Bearing his teeth in something called a smile. My sister in arms. She moved close to exterminate Va, too close. It bit her throat. Its teeth, unlike the other beasts here, are minuscule. It did not matter. She died, screaming. The smell of iron violently entered our noses. Her screams ringing in our ears. It grabbed a tool and cut itself loose. I ran like a coward I ran. I, the commander, ran. We all did. All those who survived did. brave, for the first time in my species' history, died. We are stronger, taller, faster, better. But Earth's suppressive gravity made us slow. The creature's savageness was unholy. Those who tried to fire our railguns didn't have enough time to get them to bear. He rushed forward like a wounded animal. The stench of blood and feces did not overpower him. The cries of pain did not deafen him. To my five sisters who fought that day, at least your deaths were quick. As he bit her, I saw the eyes of a demon. We saw one of them. The Dropped Leader, simply known as the Rue. We fought them for months. The more we learned, the more it made sense. His ancestors a few generations ago used things called nuclear bombs to efficiently end their world. A bomb that poisons the land it touches. What's left of it, his forefathers fled to their moon and survived in a city called Bukunawa. Like us, he was born poor. Like us, he fought against the powers that be. Like us! He was sent to a Hellworld to see if was survivable. Except his Hellworld was the very one his ancestors destroyed. He and the prisoners who came to Earth known as the Dropped. On Earth he fought the legacies, those who survived the bombs and the bunkers. They fought a culture that, like ours, taught their children to fight. Like us, stronger, taller, faster, better. Yet he nearly won. Extinction. Is what the Legacies faced until we came. They have primitive technology, not primitive minds. The Dropped and the Legacies set aside their differences to fight side by side to defeat us. And that was before they found an army's worth of firearms in the bunker. Our Enhanced ears deafening us in the hell's of gunfire, their bullets tumbling into our bodies. We surrendered. When we did, we finally figured out English and told them our story. About the Queen, our losing fight. Some of his generals openly wept. But they were like us, sent to die on the same planet, no less. In a way, they were killing their own sisters. Rue, the demon, just quietly said to himself, We made peace. That's what they called it. Its meaning is wonderful. Freedom from disturbance. Tranquility. We stopped our curling. We learned about each other. We taught them about the wonders of space. They taught us how to enjoy it. We fixed our ships and soldiers. Showed them technology beyond their wildest wishes. They showed us how to survive without it. Rue taught us many words, but when I lay in bed, two seemed to always echo in my mind. Tyrant! And another one. Revolution. Now we are going back home. To once again try to free our planets from its squeeze, But this time with how? This time with an army of humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1759. Story number one. Property rights. Written by A.W.M.D. Ladd. There are many Terran praises that terrify the galaxy. A soldier fears, you're going down with me. A merchant fears, can I speak to your manager? A delinquent fears, back around and find out. But everyone fears, get off my property. You see, the Terran economy is structured differently than the rest of the galaxies. Millennia of regulations, interference, monopolies, and trade has led most races down the route of corporatism. Each socio-economic sector is dominated by one body, be it government or monopoly, and it little goes on without their consent, for the sake of cooperation and unity. Many races have codified this into law, stifling the chance of any individual entrepreneurship. The Terrans did things differently. Relatively isolated from other major powers in the Orion Arm, humanity had a plethora of systems to colonize and resources to establish. Once they achieved FTL travel, millennia-old policies were dusted off and a new age of colonialism and exploration began. Now the Terrans were not one united group as they are now. Nearly a dozen major and hundreds of minor powers fought for dominance. Coming out of the Third Interplanetary War, the governments had a bounty of planets to settle, but precious few resources to do so. Colonization and terraforming was expensive, dangerous, and time-consuming. Three words that no government wants to hear. One of the major nations, the translation phonic, MRICANNS instituted a set of policies that facilitated both it and humanity's rise to dominance. Despite emerging victorious at the end of the war, the nation was still weakened and drained by the conflict. Having gone through several such situations in the past, they concluded that the only way to recover was to aggressively expand outwards. Making many bold territorial claims, the third Homestead Act was initiated. this set of a chain reaction whereby every other bower did the same, each frantically rushing to carve out a piece of the galaxy as their own. Although making claims was one thing, but enforcing them was another. To enforce every system taken would have drained their governments long before first contact. So they turned to their citizens, essentially. Their policy was that anyone could settle on a celestial object and develop it in some way, therefore had a right to own it. This initially resulted in some rather hilarious instances of prospectors placing a wood plank over a ditch and proclaiming that it to be a bridge and declaring ownership over the entire planet. But kings such as these were eventually ironed out. Given that national militaries at the time lacked the ability to defend such territory, and that said territory were often inhospitable death worlds, very loose weapons laws were adopted so that frontiersmen could defend themselves and their properties. Many of these properties, often beginning as single-person habitats delivered from orbit, would grow into massive estates and corporations as they passed down through the family. Household names, such as Clayton Defense, Browning Ballistics, and Clay Shipbuilding, began from such humble beginnings. Eventually, this resulted in the belief of going out and defending what is yours being ingrained into nearly every Terran culture. When the First Terran Nithiki War began, the Nithiki took one look at the fragile worlds lacking any military presence and laughed. They were facing nothing but civilians. It should have been an easy fight, as they learned the hard way. Humans do not give up. This was how the Nathiki lost their first High General in over 140 cycles. Not to a professional and skilled army, but to a 69-year-old small business owner by the name of Sigmus Chad, with a kinetic hunting rifle on Sugandis three. The High General was a fairly arrogant person who was entrenched in the Nathiki culture of honor at the time, and traveled in the planet's surface to personally offer the citizens a chance to surrender. They would be taken into slavery within the Empire, but would be given good positions as butlers or aides. This, he reasoned, was only fair seeing as their government abandoned them. The pity he felt for the Terrans was not reciprocated. While the High General spoke in the planet's capital of Llamal Square, Mr. Chad watched as a pair of Nathiki soldiers began taking goods from his store, shooting them dead with his suppressed kinetic pistol. He walked upstairs to his residence, opened the window, and chanted the infamous words of, Get off my property! The High General could only turn in confusion, and watch as the barrel of Sigmus's rifle was pointed at his head. Although Sigmus would be later executed, his actions earned him a spot in history, and a statue in the square, right above where the General fell dead. The remains of his store would be declared a Terran historic site, with money from the tourism-generated funding, Sigondis Three's meteoric growth. Sigmus's name would rapidly enter the Terran vernacular, with a chad often being used to refer to a strong, assertive, and defiant character. Across the Terran frontier, as more Thiki forces invaded, they were met with similar resistance, effective to a terrifying degree. Civilian militias would fight in sieges from guerrilla warfare bands and conduct espionage on nearly every planet until the main military could arrive. Mythiki commanders would often struggle over the question of orbital bombardment, the resources present, making such an endeavor unthinkable, with the nigh unkillable resistance making it all the more reasonable. Eventually, the remaining Terran nations would come to unite following their triumph at the end of the war, continuing their rapid expansion as the truth of the galaxy came to light. That is why Get Off My Property is so terrifying. Not because it is a warning, but a promise. Nothing can stand between a Terran and what's theirs. If their war machine of their most powerful militaries in the galaxy can be ground to a halt by Terran militia with hunting rifles and hunting weapons. Terran weapon regulations are more of an opinion than law on many rural systems. Then what can the galaxy do against the entire species? End of story. Story number two. He taught me. Written by Underscore Underscore dash Underscore 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 Dash 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 Underscore I came to destroy him and his world, to add another note into my file. One more engagement to acquire confirmed kills. Another brush fire to distinguish myself above my peers. It played out identically time and again, for we were an unstoppable force within the galaxy. Occasionally, we had our setbacks, But that was why I existed. To correct and compensate for the mathematically inevitable moment that the marker flipped to tails. He should have hated me. I took solace in that I hadn't fired on his world, but I ached with sorrow for enabling those that had. A lost being, I was, tormented by my marooned state on his obliterated world. I didn't know how my comrades and I were defeated, but defeated we were. His people called our defeat a Pyrrhic victory, but they had won. They had won and scattered me and my comrades amongst the stars and their own desolate world. Through a fluke of chance, my kind outnumbered his own, despite a catastrophic war of genocide we had waged against one another. Yet he still cooked for me, and gave me alcoholic drink for his own manufacture. He baked bread for me, then taught me the simple pleasure of cultivating yeast, and kneading my own dough. He taught me to make alcohol to dull the worst and enhance the best of my days. He taught me the mastery of things forbidden to my comrades and I. A child. Such an alien thing to me. He took charge when I faltered, cared for her when I was lost and flustered. I was a soldier, not a parent. It was not his child to fend for. Yet he taught her and me how to thrive. My darling daughter. The one thing I had created, on accident, up to that point. He taught me her multiple languages, encouraged her to make beautiful poetry as she strummed simple handmade instruments. I thought he did it for me. I thought he did it to join me in bed. He did it because it was the right thing to do, because his culture couldn't be stopped. Though their population was dying, their lessons were thriving. To my dismay, I didn't understand that until he had died. They never stopped teaching us, going so far as to fully mix with us. We had been clones, produced by the billions to wage endless war. Humanity gifted us our individuality, at the cost of their own. I wish I had sung him my first song of sorrow. My second one was of rage against those who had made me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1760. Story number one. Onion Ninjas. Written by I See What's NURP. Captain Val sighed as she looked over the report one last time before submitting it. Never before had she thought that so much trouble could come from asking a simple question. Then again, there are humans involved. Two months earlier... "'What's that?' Danica asked their human marine, referring to the droplet of liquid in his eye had excreted. "'That... oh, it's nothing to worry about,' Thomas said with a smile. "'It's just those damned onion ninjas. They crop up sometimes during sad movies.' "'Sad, sad?' I internally cringed. "'This movie was beyond sad. It was heart-rending. "'The boy's horse... no. It was worse than that. "'Calling it horse would be a betrayal of all he was.' reducing him to a means of locomotion. He was the boy's closest friend, and he just... gave up. While well, his friend begged and pleaded. But are onion ninjas? Dranica asked, never curious about human culture. Onions are a food from back home, Thomas explained. If you aren't prepared, they can make you cry, Well ninjas are an ancient warrior renowned for being sneaky. So an onion ninja sneaks up in humans and causes them to cry if they aren't prepared. Obviously, an oversimplified explanation. But I smiled as the youngster took it to heart. With that, we settled back in to watch the rest of the movie. Night of the instant. Captain! Captain! Dranica shrieked in panic as he stormed into the bridge. Dranica, calm down, I immediately replied, folding my wings around the Frenchling. His plumage was fluffed out in terror, and he was taking huge, heaving breaths. Remember Thomas's training. Better to take a moment and recount a coherent story than to give in to panic and cause confusion. Dranica shook for a brief moment as he tried desperately to compose himself before he started speaking. Sorry, uh, but it's Thomas's... his eyes... He started getting overworked again, and I interrupted him. Calm down, now, I ordered. What's this about Thomas's eyes? I asked, looking over the instrument panels. Nothing was out of order, so surely it couldn't have been that bad right? They're melting, he shrieked, plumage rubbing back to full again. Nonsense, I said. He was just going to cook some dinner with items from his home world. There's no way that something from there would cause his eyes to melt. I started heading back towards the kitchen, when a thought struck me. Thomas had mentioned getting onions in our last run. If they could make a human cry, what could they do to the Eros? On second thought, though, Let's go ahead and equip breathers. uh, Better safe than sorry. Five minutes later, we were suitably equipped. Breathers were self-contained unit, had their own air supply. Perfect for areas where the air not being suitable was the only hazard. What I wasn't prepared for was the sight that greeted me when I walked into the kitchen. Thomas was bent over the cutting board, chopping through a round of white vegetables that seemed to have the slightest bit of juice inside. Oh, hey there, Captain. He greeted me with a sniff using the sleeve of the garment to wipe his face. I couldn't move. Thomas, our marine companion, had liquid streaming from his eyes and nose. Not only that, but he continued to drop this odd vegetable. How could he see to use the knife? Thomas, your eyes are melting, I screeched in panic. Huh? This? Oh, it's okay, ma'am, he said, wiping his face again before depositing more vegetables into the pot. The onions were just a bit fresher than what I'm used to is all. ''Your eyes,'' I trowled off. ''Captain!'' Danica interrupted. ''I'm detecting large amounts of sulfur compounds in the air.'' ''Yep, that's the onions,'' Thomas said before I could register to what was going on. ''They'll bring a tear to your eye.'' ''Tear to your eye, Thomas? Who gave you permission to bring bioweapons on board?'' I screeched, ''Bioweapons? Nah, these aren't bioweapons,'' he chuckled, going so far as to actually place one of them in his mouth and crunching down on it. ''They're pretty tasty. I was sort of at a loss there for a bit.'' We don't have many recipes that feature the onion. It's more of a meal enhancer than a star, you know? Anyway, then it hit me. French onion soup. I shook my head and vigorously fluffed my feathers in an attempt to drive off the faint that I could feel coming. Thomas, just ate a bioweapon in front of me. Thomas, I started, but he interrupted. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. And I guarantee you that there will be no sulfur components left after I finish cooking this. We can have the Dock Scanner, just to be sure. But I promise that the soup will be absolutely delicious. Just, uh, why don't you guys let me cook here alone and I'll call you when it's ready. Report Conclusion Despite my reservations, the ship's doctor did give the final meal his approval. I was still worried that whatever could be potent enough to cause such a violent reaction in a human would never be diluted enough for the rest of the crew. Well, I can now claim that it can be done Their warning needs to be sent out to crews that contain humans. Raw onions need to be classified in the same danger category as those capsaicin-containing peppers. Use restricted without proper safety equipment and handling procedures. End of story. Story number two. What's in a name? Written by Cold Fire Knight. Bob was having a good day at work. Traffic had been light, so his commute was smoother than usual. Plus, it was the end of his work week, and management was bringing in lunch to celebrate an unexpected increase in departmental profits this period. There were even rumors of a possible bonus, but he wasn't going to get too excited until the funds were in his account. If the bonus did happen to come in, maybe he would take his mate to that new shop she had been talking about. Even today's call volume was low enough that he wasn't constantly helping customers, which was always nice. An icon began flashing on his monitor, indicating a call transfer to his station. Well, time to make someone stay a little better, he thought with a grin. Then tapped the icon and spoke. Welcome to Galatech. Thank you for contacting technical support. This is Warball Jax. How can I assist you? Welcome to Galactech. Thank you for contacting technical support. This is Garbled Noise Jax. How can I assist you? Fitz sighed, this is the third time I've been transferred already. Can't I speak to someone who can fix this? You can assist me by not transferring me, just like the last three people I spoke to, please. Jax replied, I'm sorry that you've had so many issues and transfers. Let's see what I can do to help. What seems to be the problem? Fitz relaxed a bit. Yes, sir, I was going to log into self-service and take care of this myself, but my genetic sampler is down, so I can't use it to log into the system, he said. The automatic voice authentication doesn't seem to be working either, so I had to wade through the menus to get to a person. That's when the transfer started. That's unusual, Jax said. First, let's get logged in. Then we can look into fixing your problem. I'll need your account identifier and your name, please. Bob Jacks Jax listened, typing in the information, then paused. Huh, he thought. My apologies. The system isn't finding your account based on the information you gave me. Could you repeat it so that I can verify that I entered it correctly? The customer repeated the same information, and Varball Jax was sure he'd entered it correctly. But again, the system showed nothing. Let me repeat the information back to you, okay? I believe I may have misunderstood. Jax repeated everything back, and Fitz realized what was wrong. Ah, crap, I know it's wrong. Everyone calls me Fitz because it's my nickname. Here, let me try this. Varball listened to Fitz and thought, why would he say that? Could you repeat the last part, please? Bits stood, and four while Jacks put his head in his hands. This was such a nice day, too. sir. that's not what I asked for. Bits yelled, What do you mean that's not what you asked for? He paused and sense. No, I'm not being difficult. You asked for my name, and it's you, ma- Bits waited, then struck his head before speaking. No, I'm not giving you my species. That's my legal name. It's spelled A-E-G-H. Paul's E-A-N-N. He listened and nodded. That's right, Hugh. middle name, Fitzirk, man. Fitz listened again and shrugged. Now you know why I go by Fitz. Listen, I honestly don't know why they named me that, but I blame my dad. End love story. Tales from Outer Space 1761 Humans Must Adventure, written by Eddie Eddie. All species in the known universe desire one thing, security, not just in a physical sense, though that certainly is welcome, but in all senses, security from hunger, from loss, from suffering. All species desire security to know that they will always have a meal ready for them, somewhere safe to sleep. The concept of utopia to all species is that all one would have to worry about was eating, sleeping, and concerning themselves with the continuation of the species. Thus, the Galactic Utopia Collective was established. Through this use of drones, AI, pre-established trade routes, and machine learning, they slowly began to transition the universe towards this utopian vision. They automated the massive cargo haulers that flew between the stars and used profits to fund research into fully automated farming. Once that was achieved, they started to automate other things, Research, health every process was made automatic. And when they automated something, they reduced its cost to everyone else so low that they barely made a profit. When they automated starship fuel production, they didn't charge the automated shipping companies for fuel, and the automated farms didn't charge for food. Slowly, over generations, everything cost nothing. Machines learned how to make art, games, and stories, why would you try to create something when an AI can do it better and give it to you for free? They automate an exploration and terraforming. Why take the risk when a machine can do it? It took them centuries, but slowly they achieved what they called galactic utopia. No one had to do anything other than eat, sleep, and continue the species they were a part of. Children could choose to be educated. But there was little point beyond learning to read so you could read the stories. Why bother learning complex mathematics when the machines can do it for you? What point is science when the AI researchers outperform you at every turn? These were the questions but to those who wanted to do more, go further, and eventually they too settled into this utopian life of calm, security. We had achieved a perfect galaxy. Even the warlike races were pacified to a degree. Why fight other species when they can fight robots that are your perfect foes? You'll always be on the knife edge between loss and victory, but you'll never lose badly enough that it'll matter. And you'll always win more than you lose. Who cares about fighting when you can simply go to sleep, eat, or fornicate? Over the years, even the most of species settled down. There was the odd simulated war against the utopic robots, but even then, there wasn't any real risk or concern. No casualties. The robots would lose and retreat, but it didn't really matter. It was just an outlet. This was until humanity. Humans hate banality. They hate repetitive things. If you tell a human that for the rest of its life, it has to get up at the same time, do the same thing every day, and go to sleep at the same time, it'll rage against it. It might not be right away. It might not even be within a year or two, if it's a thing the human enjoys. But eventually, they will rebel. When humanity achieved FTL, the GUC approached them and offered them a utopia of security. And humanity said, yes, at first at least. They were given two dozen worlds to settle. The factions that would normally war with one another were split across the worlds to give them all the space they needed. Then humanity got bored. It started in small numbers, ones and twos. They would sneak aboard cargo ships or exploration shuttles and travel elsewhere, to other planets, to the edges of space. These renegades were either resettled on their home planet or on their destination planets. And this seemed to placate them for a time. But then the numbers started to increase. Humanity didn't stop wanting to learn. Even with the machines capable of doing everything better than them, humanity still wanted to be doing they would manufacture risk for themselves. They would climb things too high to be safe, or go swimming in places that could contain poisonous creatures. They wanted to go see other races. They wanted to explore the edges of space. They didn't care if they would put them at risk or mean that they might not have somewhere perfect to sleep. They would throw themselves out into the wilderness with nothing but a thin cloth bag and some fire-starting equipment, just for fun. Humanity hated Utopia. Oh, they loved the free food, secure place to return to, and a surety of abundance. But they could not stand the security it required, nor the repetitive nature that the security held. Some of them, were content to stay put and enjoy the security that it provided. But others, lots of others, couldn't. The system broke. Humanity couldn't stay still long enough to settle into Utopia. They got the system to give them ships and ripped out the machines, replacing them with human crew. They started flying their own bulk haulers. They made ships built for nothing but speed and raced them around the systems they inhabited and between. They didn't care that they would get the same food and entertainment as someone they didn't do any of these things. All they wanted was to do something new, something different, or something dangerous. They started to explore unterraformed planets. Why? Because they felt they were beautiful or strange. Every other species in the galaxy had zero risk-based death rate. The only deaths that occurred were because of incurable medical conditions or old age. Humanity, on the other hand, had a death rate that, while much reduced due to medical advances, was still far, far higher than any other species. Over 10% of human deaths were due to adventure-related, humans going out beyond the security of their designated zones and doing stupid things. freezing because they didn't manage to get back before the snowstorm hit on the ice plain, or falling from some stupid cliff that they had climbed. The GUC, long since automated, as had the rest of the universe, simply failed. It couldn't understand nor calculate these humans. They didn't care if the machines offered them endless games or books or TV shows. They didn't care if there were robots for them to practice against. They wanted to practice against other humans or other species. They didn't want caretaker drones looking after them when they went out for a walk in the forest. They threw off the GUC's oversight and caretaking. They took it to exploring themselves. They shipped their own food. They let the GUC step in when things went really wrong. A security net, they called it. But other than that, they did what they wanted. How they wanted. The worst part of it, it was infectious. Once a human landed on your planet, they started talking about things like exploration, the unknown, and adventure. The last one, adventure, was the worst of them all. Most people would think it just meant something unusual and exciting somewhere that isn't here. But that wasn't what the humans used it to mean. To us, who grew up under the GUC's banner, adventure was just a class of story. A hero would go forth on a journey to face a challenge or evil, overcome it, and return home in glory. But no. For humans, an adventure was something that seemed to stir the soul. It set the light behind their eyes that seemed to drive them to break the G.U.C.'s perfect continuum, to abandon the security that the endless food and safe places and rest was. It was to go out into the beyond, to challenge themselves to face some kind of intrinsic fear or unwillingness. Once they'd done an adventure, they could never do it again. Or at least, they said, you can only do a thing for the first time once, they would say. For adventurers... It seemed, once you'd done it once, you couldn't do the same adventure again. Oh sure, you could do similar adventure, and others could do your adventure, but only if they had not done it before. You could explore a different planet, or a different bit of the same planet, but you couldn't explore the same bit. Once you'd been on even a small adventure with these humans, that was it. You were hooked. Something deep inside you changed, or broke, or reawoke. I don't know. The first adventure I had with a human was simple, small. i left my nesting zone. I'd left my two mates behind, as well as my unhatched egg. An almost unthinkable thing at the time. I'd never left my nesting zone, let alone the same room as the unhatched egg for as long as I'd lived. All we did was walk around the block. It was less than ten minutes by the human's reckoning. But it was all new for me. My heart was racing, I was scared, excited, worried, exhilarated, and I couldn't stop smiling, Oh, what passed for it amongst my kind. When I got home, my mates looked at me like I was insane. I'd left the nesting zone, I'd abandoned an egg, but when I checked the egg, nothing was wrong. There'd been no great catastrophe, nothing had happened, I'd just gone for a walk. When I look back on it now, it seems so small, so insignificant. The human and I went for a walk about the block. But that feeling, that mixture of worry, of fear overwhelmed by anticipation, excitement, and an almost childlike glee, was addictive. I found myself going for walks more and more often around the block. But when that didn't cause my body to shake and race like it had the first time, I took to walking further. Exploring different places. When I realized that I still craved that feeling, but I'd run out of places to walk in the near area, I started to walk farther away. But that still didn't move me. I understood the human desire, that endless need for more. A simple walk in the grid of nesting zones, with delivery drones zipping overhead, and the sun above me wasn't enough. It was pleasant, yes, but... It didn't light the fire in my breast that first walk had. So I walked at night, and once again, I was afraid. I feared that I'd not find my way back, or my mates would think me spirited away in the dark. But once again, there was the light of excitement and joy that overwhelmed the worry. I returned home, to the warm comfort of my bed. I lay my head down and slept the best sleep I had in a long while. That was over five years ago, and here I stand in the observation deck of a human exploration ship, looking out into the darkness of the black void with only glittering stars winking back at me. I can see my home star growing ever larger. I am once again returning home after an adventure. My mates have long accepted that I am infected by the human need for these wonders into the unknown. They no longer worry about me or fuss for the possibilities of things going wrong. They have, I have, the scars to prove it. But I do not care. For each one of those scars, I've seen two dozen new sights, smelled a dozen new scents, tasted more flavors than I can dream. I am no longer entranced by the banality of the security of our nesting zone. Rather, it is secure. Warm place I can return to after an adventure. I have found that much like the endless humdrum of the utopia, to be smothering my desire for more. If I was to adventure endlessly, I would burn out and find myself unable to enjoy the sense of wonderment and joy that comes from it. I think I finally understand why humans can't stand the idea of living quietly in a perfect world. Humans are not driven by the desire for security. Or even the desire to live as I once did. They desire to be alive. They want to experience all of the galaxy has to offer. And sate that lust that sits deep within their hearts. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1762. Story number one. The human I knew. A good man. Written by a teller of tall tales. Samuel was subdued as he fixed his own damage. It had been largely superficial, but massively painful. Dr. Samuel had gotten a transmission from the rest of the pirate fleet. Humans, surrender your ship! We have our own humans to send! As Dr. Samuel gently applied the lost self-adhesive carapace plaster, he paused and said, I want you, Neil, to be on the FTL pods. Bring this one with you. I was taken aback. My name was Cathnail, but he'd never referred to me so simply. You're there if there's no one here to help you. Dr. Samuel nodded, a soft look in his eyes. I am okay with that. My life is not worth risking yours. or anyone else's. I stood firm, crossing all four of my arms across my chest. The human and the Kothdorian shared similar characteristics, to height and weight but the Gatorian had more arms and eyes, perhaps more speed. Yet, he wanted me to leave. I will not leave, Samuel, he sighed. Then, before I could blink, Samuel slapped me hard and fast. I blacked out, and when I awoke, I was in one of the pods. The ship was fading away. What I know of the human I knew after that moment comes from recovered footage of the ship's interior. A calm, quiet Samuel walked through the halls, a cigarette between his lips, hands in pockets of his white coat. He paused at the open security room, stepping inside and out of view. When I saw him next, it bothered me. The patient, kind, peaceful, and wonderful human I knew, always in the stark white coat and black turtleneck. He stepped out with a ballistic rifle of all things, a thick fabric breast, probably armor, over the bare chest but that wasn't the disturbing part. At first, it was the tattoos, hundreds if not thousands of names in black ink, up his arms from just past his wrist and leading to his torso beneath the vest. His eyes seemed to sparkle, but I could tell there were tears. Dr. Samuel charged towards the docking bay as the ship rumbled, cameras snapping to his location. The first human pirates never saw Samuel, largely because Samuel shot the main lights out the hallway, dropping dark. The night vision on cameras showed Samuel, firearm spitting lead in fury, until it ran empty. The pirates staggered, attempted to fight, but fell as quick sharp thrusts of almost dance-like wielding of Samuel's rifle. The ship's floors splattered with human blood. There were no more alien than human alike. The pirates were numerous and brought artificial illumination. Samuel ran a laser and plasma bolts arced and sprouted around him, a splash of bright plasma catching his leg. He crumpled beneath him, and he fell. The pirates converged, and the burly human threatened Samuel. Doctors don't belong on the front lines. He kicked Samuel over, then froze. Samuel had a large smile on his face, illuminated by pirate lights. He spoke, and his words chilled me to the bones. I win. I'm only one on your ship, you sad excuses for pirates. He laughed, and to my surprise lifted himself to his feet. The plasma was eating his flesh, but his bone, or lack thereof, was magnetic. I am Dr. Samuel Bourne, Medic First Class of the Terran Empire Marines, and I challenge you to a one-on-one combat, Captain. The big human laughed but seemed to agree, tossing his blaster aside and activating a cybernetic eye. Your death, Samuel. A heavy fist flew towards Samuel's face. Then he caught it, sweeping to the side and punching upwards into the rival male's elbow joint, the joint bending backwards, as Samuel stated. Fractured and dislocated elbow joint. A swift punch to the throat and Samuel growled. Broken hyoid, if it's not fixed, you'll die within the cycle. Then, sweeping behind the male, he yanked the rune arm over his shoulder, the captain screaming in pain as he was brought to the ground on his back, breathless, where Samuel took a hold of the man's head, almost gently. Then, with a violent twist, the captain went silent as Samuel barely whispered, Broken C5 and C6 vertebra. Immediately fatal. He stood, staring down at the pirates, before pointing at the docking bay. Leave my ship now! It almost looked as though the pirates might listen. Then, as one, they raised their weapons, and Samuel disappeared and a flash of shattered light. I looked up from the podium at Samuel's funeral, a mass congregation staring back. So I say this, the human I knew taught me the value of patience, hard work, mercy, and true humility. I wiped the tears from my eyes, a shudder in my voice as I said, but most importantly, he taught me the human concept of a peaceful man. In my species, A peaceful one does not partake in military actions, nor fighting. They are purely non-combatant. This, I thought, was peaceful. and I took another deep breath of the thin Terran air. Those of my species, I thought peaceful. They were harmless. Samuel, he was so much more than a doctor. He was my mentor. A valuable intellectual. But, most importantly, when the time came... Then he was given a choice to surrender the lives of millions of alien species for his own kind. But instead, he chose to fight. Not because they were close to him. Not because they were currency. I stared at the podium. He saved them. Simply because he was a good man. I stand here today to say, and I took a deep breath, Dr. Samuel's only wish. As I found from the to pad he left me, was that we continue the good that we do. Not because of the evil in the world, but despite it. I stepped down from the podium into the silent yard of the old human burial ground. I'm going to miss Samuel, but I'm not going to forget him. End of story. Story number two. Arrogance, written by Dynomya. The Benedict was the most advanced race in the galaxy, and they used all lesser races as their servants. When they think a new species is ready, they send a conquering force and subjugate them to add them to their slave ranks. After the scouts returned from their reconnaissance mission of Earth, the King looked over the report and decided to send a single warship to conquer the humans, as their defenses were that primitive. The warship arrived in orbit, and within an hour, It had destroyed all weapons of any significance, no matter where they were or how they were hidden. It then sent down an unarmed craft and left orbit. The craft parked itself in front of the UN headquarters building and broadcast a message in all languages around the world. We are the Benadar. The destruction of all of your weapons was to show you that you are completely at our mercy. Now technology is superior to yours and far beyond your understanding. You will provide one billion able-bodied breeding-age humans to be willing slaves for our empire. You will continue to supply slaves as we see fit, so that you understand how powerless you are. We have given your scientists full access to a ship parked at your UN headquarters. They'll be able to access the databanks and see our history and how we are in control of the entire galaxy. They will also have access to the technology on board the ship, though they will not be able to understand it. In three days, a single representative will board this craft to return to us with your decision, and will become our first slave. Failure to comply will result in your entire species being taken as slaves, and will face eventual extinction. Humanity sent in the scientists, and they downloaded all information they could get. The Benader's boast was not bragging. They were the top dog in the galaxy. Nobody could stand up to them. The scientists studied the tech and could not figure out what energy it used, let alone how it worked. Engineers poured over every system, trying to glean any usable information. After three days were up, the volunteer boarded the ship and it took off, headed back to its home world. When it exited Wolf and entered into the system, a communication was received... We are glad you humans realized the futility of resistance and recognized our superior technology. Yes, answered Jim. Our scientists were not able to understand how your technology works. He continued, he continued, as he could see the craft approaching a planet that looks to be a single city. But, uh, we did figure out one thing. What insignificant detail have you learned that would do you any good? The voice asked, sarcastically, We've figured out how to hotwire the warp drive, Jim said as he pressed a button engaging the warp drive and sending the ship crashing into the planet below with enough force to cause the core to emerge from the other side, effectively turning it inside out. And it exploded. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1763 a Sovereign's upsetting choice, written by underscore, underscore, dash, underscore, underscore, underscore dash, 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 underscore. Weeks had a habit of becoming months, and months became years in short order. A year had passed since the Feast of the Bayonets, and the situation had only grown more bloody. Several major engagements had been had, nominally between Sovereign Beetlesheen's new government and the rebellious nobles. So far as the Elfin army was concerned, it was a squabble between nobles, at least on paper. In actuality, each engagement had Elfin army elements attached to each side. Usually, they were reserves, but twice the army comprised the primary combatants on both sides. Despite the Sovereign's young age, she proved to be a capable, when not truly skilled, general. Her race in the whole were always her human mercenaries, her household guard. While the army, in its split state, had the various House guards practiced traditional and honorable line tactics, her mercenaries was something new. No matter their uniform, they were all light infantry. Light infantry, supported by cavalry and horse artillery. They were incorporeal specters, distracting entire divisions. Betelsheen's household guard and loyal army elements might have been fewer in number, but the common infantrymen would have never known. When she attacked, her forces always outnumbered her opponent's forces. Opponent commanders can never make heads nor tails of her deployment. But with a human household guard sometimes supporting the main attack, and other times deploying to confuse and harass the flanks and supply lines. Other times, her human commanders took it upon themselves to launch raids and strikes that had nothing to do with her battle plan. Beetlesheen didn't fight a war like it was supposed to be fought. And it was maddening. If she didn't fight proper wars, why should her opposition observe common courtesy? She might have set legal precedent with her document, a document of nobility had signed. But if she didn't follow the rules, why should they? They declared her an unfit sovereign, stating the document they had signed invalid and improper. They stated that no document could limit the will of the noble families. The first lashed out by the arresting the publicly executing her envoys, then they were very public about their suppression of supposed rebellious peasants, as was their noble right. Beetlesheen's power base was centered on the constant influx of refugees and peasants seeking better conditions and a brighter future. When the household guard of several opposition families, supported by army units that were loyal to them, slaughtered peasants attempting to defect and migrate to her lands, Beetlesheen was faced with a troubling conundrum. Her forces were powerful enough to check any advance her opposition made, but she couldn't protect those migrating to her cause. Her opposition was making her guarantee of support and protection hollow as they left thousands of alvin peasants dead in the fields and along the highways. The combined in front was enough to shake even the most stoic of persons. Despite that, Beetlesheed maintained an air of calm. It took her a week to determine what she needed to do. Even if her solution drove her to tears, tears, she'd let no one else see. But tears, nonetheless. The transition could have been so simple, could have been so peaceful and full of greatness. Was it her fault? Was it their fault? She told herself that it was opponent's fault, but everyone was their own worst critic. If only she hadn't stopped this bloody revolt. Sergeant Ali is here, as you requested, spoke Beetle Sheen's adjutant after knocking preceding the human by a few steps before holding the heavy door open. Sergeant, I'm happy to see you, spoke Jean as she regarded him one of her mercenaries. Though he still wore the butternut orange trousers and periwinkle jacket of a general household guard, he had accents and modifications that were atypical. His jacket sleeves rolled up to mid-forearm, revealing a wooden bead bracelet on his left wrist. In his ears he wore four piercings, two in each ear, Around his neck he wore a simple scarf of a drab white hue. All of them represented gifts from Alvin peasants, gifts no soldier or noble would ever be caught in public wearing, much less in front of their liege lord. Beetlesheen's genuine smile couldn't have been more contagious. This was the person for her task, as if the gods themselves had sculpted him. How is your Alvin? she asked as she stepped around the desk offering a handshake instead of a formal salutes and bows. Better, your kind is patient and kind, he responded. A flourish of pink suddenly accented his tanned cheeks. Some of us can be, Beetlejean offered with a crooked smile and a laugh. I want to do something special with you, Sergeant, but I'm not sure you'll survive it. Do you understand? Harley nodded. Danger! That is what I'm paid for, yes? he grinned, causing Beetlejean to grin. Yes, it is. You will lead a group of soldiers after those who are disloyal to me. I don't care about the infantrymen and peasants. I care about the noble and officer. Beetlesheen paused, cocking her head at Ollie's impish grin. Bad people, bad things, order, he offered a sigh. His grin quickly returning. You want bad things for the bad people, yes? Beetlesheen managed to stifle her mirth, if barely. Yes, bad people need to be punished. Very bad people. You and what's left of your platoon are now dragoons. She repeated the phrase, also using her best human dialect. Dragoons of the Imperial Army. I want you to bring them into line to punish those who need punishment. You are no longer a sergeant. I cannot make you, an outsider, an officer. But I can give you my warrant. You will be my warrant officer, meeting the 10th Dragoon Company. Do you understand? Ali nodded. Tenth Dragoons punish bad ones. He cocked his head to the side. What is Warrant Officer? Beetlesheen smiled brightly again. Like an officer, but not an officer. Higher than all soldiers, but lower than officer. Understand? Ollie nodded. Very old enlisted. I understand. That wasn't quite right, but Beetlesheen decided to let it slip. Protect the peasants and guide peasants here. For the first time during the conversation, Beetlesheen's smile vanished. No, she frowned. Her eyes drifting down to her feet. You do not protect. You attack and punish. Protecting is not your concern. You'll punish and destroy those who hurt the helpless. Her eye was raised to Ali's eyes. The human nodded. Protection, not my division. I hurt who hurts, yes? Beetlesheen had a ghost of a smile across the lips. Yes, warrant officer Ali. Hurt those who'd hurt my people. The Tenth Dragoons were clad in traditional Imperial Dragoon colors, an unbleached cotton jacket of an off-white that was accurately described as eggshell, with blue-hued trousers and a side cap the same color as their jacket. Given the track record of humans in Beetlesheen's employment, one would be right in assuming that that was only standard aspect of the Tenth Dragoons. Most bizarrely, their first notable engagement was a defeat. The defeat... Beetlesheen's opposition tried to exploit, but whose exploitation only served to mark them as a rallying point. Despite being told not to concern themselves with protecting migrating peasants, their first engagements were just that. Sixteen human dragoons faced off against a full division of opposition guardsmen and army regiments. A single company trying to safeguard several hundred from slaughter. Skirmish was the name of the game. Anything that make that superior opposition force think twice before advancing. Overall, they were successful. Successful due to a single invention. The repeating firearm. While they were rare, Ollie's entire company was equipped with two different types of repeating lever-action rifles. That was why they had been selected to secure the farthest point of Beetlesheen's power base. That was why she had given this particular assignment. That and the rumor from her human officers. for Ollie and a good segment of his company weren't from the same region as the rest of her human mercenaries. They were from a distant desert in the mountains similar to her own homeland. There, there had been men of questionable repute. Three of those men of questionable repute faced off against a company of opposition soldiers. Three, given the choice of delaying a slaughter or surrendering, chose to delay and protect Though the number of enemy soldiers always swelled higher, as the story was told, those three humans always remained the same. Three against 100, one hundred, one thousand, or ten thousand. It didn't matter. They had died, and their delaying action allowed the peasants to reach safety. An attempt at belittling Beetlesheen's human soldiers was quickly erected, marking the grave of three soldiers here lie three human heroes. To the peasants they protected, The headline of opposition newspapers couldn't have been more accurate. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1764 Story number one. Humans are scary. Psionics and humans. Written by Ace Zero. Psionics, according to the Galactic Concord, have always been a subject of heavy debate. It has long been known that an unseen energy permeates the universe, untraceable except by specialized senses that are programmed specifically to look for it. And according to the ancient history of many races, the practice of all manipulation of this energy is often erroneously referred to as magic. Every species has a different name for this energy, but the Galactic Concord deemed a common name as translation error, Closest available term, mana. Scions are rare in the galaxy at large, but they exist in truth. Scions can be members of any race, but they are mostly found in races that have certain glands or organs in their brains, which are sensitive to mana and can be used to mentally manipulate it. These species usually have an evolved translation error. Closest available term, right parahippocampal gyrus, attempting to abbreviate rpcg but the evolved rpcg is not unique to these species other species who aren't specifically known for psionic abilities can have members of their species exhibited mutations such as highly sensitive rpcg but while this alone is interesting something that will keep most species from entering their hibernation cycles is that this mutation has been exhibited in humans there is currently a bounty out for the live capture of a human known as Miwa Takahashi, who has denied all legal summons for her to appear before GC authorities for her witness to the Link Station raid and the events that took place during it. The Link Station was a large trading outpost in the Link system. No habitable planets were in system, but the system was once rich in natural minerals and gases. During the solars of the Great Mining Boom, the Link Station was at the pinnacle of frontier space, with ambitious miners willing to make a fortune overnight by claiming one of the many dead worlds in the system. Link Station was built with the express purpose to function as a trade hub for the miners. And when the mines dried up, it was discovered that other systems beyond Links were practically untouched, which reserved the station as a suitable stopping point to get to the Virgin Systems. These days, Link Station is still an important trade hub, connecting the outer colonies of the Galactic Concord with the rest of the civilization. One that is full of riches and prestige, that even the nobles of the Keth would find pleasingly lavish. Perhaps that is what attracted the Red Sun Pirates to the station. Last cycle, at Fraction 18 of Solar 3 in the 35th Lunar, translating timestamp, August 31st, 6pm, 2251. The pirates struck. Two dozen crimson ships dropped out of warp and immediately jammed all communications with Link's station. Two of the larger vessels brought warp inhibitors platforms to opposite sides of the system, as the smaller combat ships arrayed themselves around the platforms. The station itself has no defenses, and so the various boarding craft and repurposed cargo vessels swiftly made their way to the station unimpeded. The private security forces on board were quickly overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of pirates boarding the station. Many people were captured or killed within the first fraction. About 60% of the station belonged to the pirates. Enter Miss Takahashi, who had stopped on the station to resupply her ship before moving on to the outer colonies on a family matter. Miss Takahashi was a registered scion from a Delta-class death world called Earth. While she is rated as a mid-level scion, she never specified how she trained her psionic powers. But the security footage on board Link Station revealed the power, and the revelation was both unnerving and a spark for endless debate among scholars and scientists who study the effects and manipulation of mana. The security footage shows Ms. Takahashi knelt over a fallen security officer chanting something in her native tongue. It was the first thought that she was paying her respects to the dead, a common occurrence amongst more spiritually-minded races. But psionic senses showed mana entering the corpse, passing through Miss Takahashi's head, where it was suspected her RPCG is. Suddenly, the body she knelt over sat upright in a mechanical movement, and in one swift motion, Miss Takahashi attached a piece of paper to the guard's head, which had a script written on it and the linguists have identified as native to her home world of Earth. The guard stood up, his arms outstretched. At Miss Takahashi's direction, the guard began following her in an odd hopping motion. Security scans showed that the guard was still dead, but an unusual amount of mana had imprinted itself onto his corpse. Miss Takahashi moved through the station, psionically raising several more corpses, some of the security forces, some of the pirates, even some who were instant bystanders, she only ever directed these corpses to attack the pirates. When corpses did attack, the manner animating them seemed to toss them across the room towards their target. There, they would grab them, psionic sensors show psionic energy passing through the pirates and into each corpse that grabbed them, seemingly causing any damage through the corpse to heal before the pirates themselves perished. Miss Takahashi's corpses ended up routing the pirate borders, driving them back to their ships in a mass of panic. And who can blame them? There have been no recorded instances like this, a mass of dead people attacking a military force until now. During the pirates' retreat, Miss Takahashi boarded one of the vessels docked at the station. It is assumed that this ship, a converted cargo hauler owned by the Red Sun, was commandeered by Miss Takahashi. All the functional pirate ships left the system on vectors towards uncharted space, except for the single cargo hauler which sent a course to the outer colonies. Witnesses surviving the incident report that many valuable and rare goods were loaded onto this cargo hoarder by the pirates. As this report was compiled at the request of GC Safety Commission, at this point, I am obliged to ask that if you or anyone you know has seen Miss Takahashi to immediately inform your local authorities. She is not considered a criminal, but is wanted for questioning in regards to the link station raid. Her current whereabouts are unknown. However, I believe that it's for the best that no one knows where she is. Scions are incredibly powerful and have access to abilities that rival legends. And I certainly don't wish to hear any more horror stories involving human Scions. End of story. Story number two. The Most Dangerous Being in the Galaxy. Written by Whiskey Lullaby. Excerpt from testimony of Tizenka, former pirate captain. It had started like any other raid. A few disabled torpedoes to knock out the pitiful engines humans mount in their craft. A quick swoop to disorient and terrify the crew, before hooking on and overriding the woefully outdated security systems. After that, it was supposed to be boring. Shoot whatever idiots tried to use their weak chem-propellant weapons. Tie up the rest loot the cargo, and take the captain hostage. We knew the monkeys were nuts. We just figured that until they caught up with the tech, we could handle anything the mans threw at us. Our first hint that something was wrong was when the airlock opened. The crew were all uh, sickly, thin, skin-wet, with that weird stuff they make when they get too hot. Sweat, they call it. Most were old, too. Gray hair, wrinkled skin... Humans have always been ugly, but these guys looked like my expletive deleted, had gotten too expletive, and rotted for a week. Worried about contamination, I had my medic scan All of them were sick, but nothing contagious. Radiation damage had made their own cells turn on them. Cancer, I think it's called. We rounded them up and stuffed them in the hold anyway, loading all the cargo from their ship into our hold. Easiest pickings yet, I went to find the captain. I figured he wasn't worth much, likely dying like the rest of his crew. But maybe he had some items of value, or exotic earth artifacts that were becoming popular. Well, I found him. He was sitting, and my readout said that while he was in pain, he was calm, amused even. He was too frail to stand and held something in his hand. Who are you? he asked. To come aboard my ship and take my cargo. He bared his teeth in a bizarre human expression of mirth. Actually, it doesn't matter. You'd best return my cargo if you value your life. I laughed then, too assured of my own power. What could a frail old crippled monkey do to a pirate in power armor? Who am I? I am Pirate Lord Tazenga. Who are you, a frail little monkey? Who can't even stand a sick old expletive? With no weapons and no support, who are you to make demands of me? The human just smiled and hit a button before saying, I am the most dangerous being in the galaxy. A man with nothing to lose. My suit registered a radio signal passing through our ship. Something so primitive it barely registered on our senses. In the next moment, the entire cargo had exploded, having been filled with something no sane spacecraft would ever have aboard. Chemical explosives. More were hidden in the walls and around the major weak points of the hull, such as viewports and doors. Decompression happened almost instantaneously on both ships. My ship was crippled, and my crew was dead. The lucky ones were vaporized in the blast more of the ensuing plasma leaks. Others were launched out into the endless dark. I only survived because my power armor was too bulky to be pulled through the nearest tear in the human's hull. That is, where I remained wedged until the galactic patrol pulled me out and put me on trial. End of excerpt. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1765 Boldly going. Written by saxophone Yeti. Captain, I must object. As I told you the last six times, Beth, your objection has been firmly noted in my log. Federal regulations clearly state. Captain Dawn Washington abruptly stopped and turned to face Erexo. I'm familiar with the rules, Commander. Article 12, Section 4, governing conduct for flag officers. The commanding officer of a federal vessel shall not depart their vessel without explicit consent of the Admiralty. In times of war or crisis. Unless I'm mistaken, Beth, we are not at war. She turned back, walking briskly down the hallway once again. The commander, startled, jogged for a moment to catch up. No, sir. But with the ship this close to the Imperial neuter zone, Beth... You read the scans. This could be an archaeological find of the generation. An intact trove of Draxian artifacts... We're talking about prehistoric empire. Fifty millennia of galactic dominance all vanished in an instant. We studied the tablets at the Academy, but no one has been able to recover anything from the era beyond a few pieces of art. Yet here we are, an orbit of a planet thrown far from its present star, with fully intact buildings, entire cities, matching the time period consistent with high Draxian civilization. All alone, deep space. It's a miracle we found the planet at all. And if it's a trap, the Imperials have been known to send elaborate ruses to get their hands on federal tech, such as the Omni Omnicron Delta IV, I recall. But there are no signs of life, no ships in orbit, not even a single unusual tacky on a mission in ten light years. I'm going down there. Then you have the con... Captain! Commander Beth. The captain put her hand on the commander's shoulder. You're going to be fine. Nothing is going to happen to me. Nothing is going to happen to the ship. Nothing is going to happen at all. And if it does, you're more than capable of handling a crisis. Believe in yourself. Dawn clapped her exo on the arm and looked at her solemnly in the eyes. I do. Beth sighed, yes, sir. Will you at least take a full security compliment? I have my team. Jefford is more than capable with a sidearm. And besides, nothing alive has stepped foot on that planet a hundred thousand years. That's precisely what I'm afraid of, Captain. But it's your prerogative, sir, and it seems like there's nothing I can do to talk you out of it. Captain Washington smiled and put a hand on the doorpad. As an airlock hissed open, five individuals standing on the other side snapped to attention. That is, the captain nodded at Beth, and the commander stepped forward. Team, your mission is to find a suitable landing zone for the hopper, establish a defensive perimeter, and ensure the safety of the captain. Beth caught a glare from Captain Washington, and of course... To locate any objects or locations of significant archaeological importance to be examined, studied, and possibly extracted for further review, the glare softened. You could find anything down there, she continued, so stay vigilant, load up, and move out. As the team entered the hopper, final flight checks complete, go for departure, and the captain sat down in her seat. Thoughts of history classes at the academy ran through her head, and her imagination began to wander. What incredible pieces of historical relevance might they find down there? New works of art, an intact domicile, written stories, or perhaps even a historical compendium? She smiled, before a sharp interruption broke her trance. Captain, uh, you're going to want to look at this. Beth jumped forward, leaning over her pilot's massive systems display. What is it, Vasquez? I'm not entirely sure, sir. Scanners are showing a massive structure, partially buried, but, uh, Ground penetrating sensors seem to indicate that wall and roof integrity is fully intact. It's not collapsed, just hollow. It's, uh, huge. Mel, Vasquez. Uh, you have my attention. Take us down as close as you can get. The captain sat down, barely disguising her glee. As the hopper landed, the captain was the first one out the door, over Jefford's objection. The hopper had come down in a clearing, maybe a hundred meters wide, between the city proper and the structure itself. In front of them was a massive building, multiple kilometers across, shaped like a hemisphere embedded into the planet's surface. It stood hundreds of meters high, far taller than any of the buildings in the city, and the entryway alone was cavernous. "'I think our next step is clear,' Washington addressed a team. "'Grab your gear. We're going inside.' Once they were fully equipped, the team began their journey into the bowels of the massive structure. The walls weren't metal, at least.' Not any kind that was recognizable. Light seemed to dance along the interior surface like ripples on a disturbed puddle. The effect deepened as they began to descend further underground. All right, Vasquez, report. Where are we? What is this place? I'm open to any theories. Well, sir, it's obviously quite large and significant based on its prominence in the city. Perhaps some kind of community gathering place, like a stadium or assembly hall. Not a bad theory, Basquez. Makes sense, considering the size of the entryway. Jeffords. I think that it must be a place for storage of important objects, like, uh, like what the Slobod Institute vault was back on Earth. This entryway could easily accommodate vehicles loading and unloading. An interesting thought, both of you. Keep an eye out for any more signs of purpose. Oxendo Head on swivel for some kind of security system. Lau, you, you, Lau, the captain turned around, seeing Lau distracted by some sort of terminal a few dozen meters back. Lau! Captain, come take a look at this. Lau pointed his flashlight at the terminal, and the technicolor ribbons that danced across the wall seemed to coalesce on the terminal's inputs, which had begun to pulsate. Cautiously, the captain reached forward and pressed the largest input. The structure shuddered, and the ground beneath the team shook for a moment before beginning to descend. Here's everyone all right, the team looked around. No one seemed injured, although Vasquez had fallen in the commotion. The platform, roughly ten meters across, was descending into the ground like a roof, and wall-less elevator descending into its shaft. Before anyone could fully get their bearings, however, the walls had disappeared. Or, more accurately, the elevator had descended through the shaft and into the largest room the captain had ever seen. Her ship, the pride of the Federal Navy, could comfortably fit inside at least three times over. Like the building itself, the room was shaped like a massive hemisphere. The elevator platform was floating downwards, but it had easily another kilometer to go before landing on the floor. The lights that swam on the walls and the entryway came to life all over the chamber, dancing like an aurora, reacting to the first life forms to enter this hall in countless lifetimes. At the center of the bottom of the chamber was a dais, perhaps a hundred meters tall. As the light and colors rebounded around the wall, they grew more and more intense until the dais was glowing brighter than anything else in the room. From the top of the dais, a brilliant white light rose upwards, unfurling into an alien creature, hundreds of meters tall. It turned to face the group of humans on their floating platform. Am Draxus, guardian of that which was. Who are you? Captain Washington stepped forward towards the edge of the platform. I am Dawn Washington, captain of the human Federal Navy vessel Aeolus. Human, you are of Earth. The walls began to glow intensely once again for a moment, but they settled as quickly as they had started. The movement of the stars tells me it has been a very long time since I was last awoken. Hear well, and mark me. Why are you here? We entered this place looking for knowledge. Your people are long gone to us, and we wish to know more of your kind. The holographic creature almost seemed to smile. I believe I may be able to assist you. I was an advisor to the Grand Council once. And as such, I hold the historical records of Draxia in my databanks. Advisor, Grand Council Draxus, What is this place? Captain Dawn Washington. We are in the Grand Council Chambers. The Capital Hall of my people. This planet, of course, is Draxia, Prime. The captain stepped back for a moment to collect her thoughts. After a deep breath, she turned to Vasquez. Vasquez, get me in contact with the commander. Tell her to appraise federal command of our status, and to request, I don't know, every history professor and grad student in this side of the Reviadara cluster. Until then, she turned back to Draxus, no longer suppressing her excitement. I think we have a lot to discuss. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the Tier 5 members. Marky, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnolds, Oakfield, Lord Azricol, and it's difficult to pronounce. Thank you very much.